Ladies and gentlemen, recorded in Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada. It's time for Fight Night Picks with your host, Frank and Matt Allen. Absolutely can't wait for UFC 266 coming up this weekend from Vegas. This should be a great card headlined by none other than the featherweight title fight up at the top you have alexander volkanovsky taking on brian ortega as always one half your host and duo craig allen you can find me on twitter and instagram at craig allen fnp i suggest you do but if you don't maybe check out my partner to the left matt allen you can find him on the respective socials at matt allen fnp we're making it simple for you we're having a great time and really looking forward to a dynamic card coming up this weekend on the heels of a busy weekend that we just had of course you'll Romero, one of the judges scoring his fight over Phil Davis, but we also had a great UFC card. 14 fights in total there. Another 14 coming up this weekend. As far as the records from last weekend, we did of course have the draw, but all that aside, 7-6, and six, Nine and five is what I ended up with, or nine and four, I guess, is what it was. But still, it was a great weekend overall. And parlaying that into this weekend, again, this is on the heels of the Ultimate Fighter season, Ricky Tertios. I don't think anything else matters other than just that win from the UFC's next megastar. But if we do look at that season of the Ultimate Fighter, little bit of bragging rights other than just a belt. Because if you look at the finales, it was pretty much all team Volkanovski. I don't really know how much that'll have to do with this main event, but it was really interesting because I didn't watch any of the season as it was being aired on TV. I can openly admit that. But in preparation for our breakdowns of the finale, I did go back, watch the majority of the episodes, maybe skip through a lot of like the in-between stuff that I don't really care about if I'm being completely honest. But I'm still really excited for the main event, and that's what does matter. Even if you didn't watch all the prep, all the hype, all the Ultimate Fighter stuff getting ready for it, at the end of the day, you still have Alexander Volkanovsky, who has two wins over one of the greatest fighters ever, Max Holloway, versus Brian Ortega, one of the greatest jiu-jitsu practitioners in all of MMA, who is now starting to really un or uncover, I guess, all of his striking acumen. Like, this is as good of a main event as you can possibly get. And in the co-main event, here's the thing. Not a lot of people have been that hyped for this fight, but I do think Lord Murphy's at least going to make a good account of herself. Like, what's Lord Murphy good at? Well, she has good cardio, she's pretty tough, and she never gives up. And those three things can take you pretty far, and those are the three things you need against somebody as dominant as Valentina Shevchenko. Absolutely love that fight. If you're really wondering, our 2020 Female Fighter of the Year was Lucky Lauren Murphy. She had a great year last year. She was able to get a big win over Joanne Calderwood to pro... She was able to get a big win over Joanne Calderwood to kind of push herself into this title conversation. And then just below that, the featured fight, if you will, on this card. It's a five-rounder, 17 years in the making. Of course, ruthless Robbie Lawler looking to avenge that loss way back in 2004 against Nick Diaz, the return. And his last fight, 2013 against Anderson Silva. I can't wait for it. So many great matchups on this card. It was really hard to whittle down to a fight of the night. We're going to throw it on over over to our fight of the night screen as always presented by manscape check them out at manscape.com use promo code fnp you're going to get 20 percent off and free shipping throw it on over to the fight of the night screen At lightweight this weekend, it looks like it's all but confirmed. We have Dan Hooker taking on Nazareth Hackpress. I have a little bit of hesitation on this one because for Dan Hooker, I mean, up until the start of the week, we didn't know if he was going to be able to make it over to the States, but it looks like that is the case. He's taking on Nazrat Hakpras, a guy that's had a very interesting run in the UFC, 
Only a couple of losses. One to Marchin held very early on in his UFC tenure. The last one to Drew Dober a little bit over a year and a half ago where he did get finished. But two big wins since over one of Team Alpha Male's coaches, Alexander Munoz, in his last time out. A big one over Rafa Garcia. I would say the people's champ out of Southern California. He's taking on a Dan Hooker who's had absolute wars for just about his entire UFC tenure, but three very one-sided losses in somewhat recent memory. A great fight against Dustin Poirier, a really, really tricky one against uh, Michael Chandler, and then the other one that still weighs heavy on my mind is fight against Edson Barboza, but this guy does not have boring fights. Exactly. Dan Hooker might not win them all, but they're all entertaining, and that's all I really care about for this screen, for the fight of the night screen. Nasrat Akbras is in this really unique opportunity, or this really unique spot in this division because the top 15 in lightweight's kind of been staying it for a long time. It's really good and it's one of the best top 15s probably in the whole sport but it's kind of in the same players for a long time now and it's so hard for these unranked fighters to break through and finally get a ranked opponent. Nasrin Hackbrass has another opportunity after he stumbled against Drew Dober so this should be a great fight. He has a massive step up in competition and for Dan Hooker you fought Dustin Poirier and Michael Chandler. A lot of people are going to lose to those guys and probably back to back if they ran to fight them back to back. So for Dan Hooker kind of a chance to reset a little bit against I don't really want to say lesser competition because Nasrat Hackbrass is a phenomenal fighter but this should be a great fight at lightweight. Absolutely love this one and again trying to narrow this down to a second choice very difficult. Marlon Moraes Marabdoshvili, such an interesting fight considering for Marabdoshvili, this is a guy that just continues to motor and motor and motor. Early UFC loss on the record. Do you worry about it all that much? Not so much because of the performances that he's been able to put on so far. And he just continues to win. I mean, you go down through the list. Casey Kenny, Gustavo Lopez, John Dodson, Cody Stamen, uh, Brad Katona, Terry and Ware. And then again, the losses. Frankie signs in the debut and Ricky Simone, which is always going to be tough considering the way that that fight ended. He's taking on a former title challenger in Marlon Moraes, a guy that was up at the top of that World Series of Fight division way back when and an always exciting fighter now. Lately, it's been on the wrong end of things, but you know that he's always going to deliver. I think this is going to be Scramble City, and if it's not, I'm still eager to see it. This should be an interesting fight because Marab Devalshvili, when I think of volume takedowns, I really do think of Marab now. It used to be Habib, but I do feel like now Marab has the crown because he just does not stop shooting for takedowns. And it's not one of those boring styles like Chase Shields where it's, I'm going to hide my head, shoot for takedowns, and try to hold you in position. This guy is going to be scrambling, single legs, double legs, chaining everything together. Should be a very fun fight. And for Marlon Mahesh, like, what do we know about him? He's got the one punch of death on the feet. He's got great submissions off of his back. Like, this is a big step up for Marab Devalshvili, but it should be a phenomenal fight. Can't wait for it. As always, our Fight of the Night screen presented by Manscaped. Check them out at manscaped.com. Use promo code FNP. You're going to get 20% off and free shipping with your order. Can't wait for this weekend's card. Lawler, Diaz, what a great one. But even then, you go down through the list. I mean, Curtis Blades, Jarzino Rosenstrike, a big-time banger at 265 pounds. Former strawweight champion and former flyweight uh, title challenger, Jessica Andrade has a big one up against Cynthia Calvillo. Going all the way down through the list, there's even a couple of debuts that I'm very interested in. And a couple of guys that are teammates in Nick Maximov and then Martin Sano. I mean... Who the hell knows what Martin Snow is going to bring into the cage. But overall, a great card. If you can't, just get rid of us. You'll want to see the most of Fight Night picks that you can. I have two ways for you to follow along. 
we will add a Dana White's Contender Series show to the channel if you subscribe. If you've been thinking about it, if you've been hesitating, maybe putting it off, all it takes is a little sub, and we would certainly appreciate a like as well. We're going to have question mark kicks to recap all of the picks after weigh-ins. That's two hours before the early prelims of this entire card on Saturday. But also, we're going to have the fight companion as well for UFC 266. You can tune in live with us during the show, during the pay-per-view portion. We're going to break it down. We're going to react to it. We're going to have all sorts of fun there. But again... It doesn't stop there. You can check us out on our second channel. It's 15-minute card breaks. We've been cracking packs. We've been having a great time over there. Link down below in the description as always. Did I break a Trevor Lawrence autographed Allen & Ginter this year? Yes, I did. Did I pick up on eBay a nice Joe Adele Topps Inception patch card? You're darn tootin' I did. What about Onyx Vintage? Randy Arosa Reina signed stuff. All sorts of great stuff there, but we have a lot of fun talking about not just MMA. So it's all kinds of fun over there. But Matt, I know you're incredibly excited about UFC 266. What are you thinking on this card, really? It's a great card top to bottom. There are some of those new names that we don't know a lot about, like Martin Sano. But then there's also those tried and true veterans, like Roxanne Montefiore, very much a pioneer of the sport. Robbie Lawler, Nick Diaz, Lauren Murphy. So many great names on here. And another fight, too, that you just mentioned in passing, but I feel like it does deserve a little bit more shine. Charzinho Rosenstrike versus Curtis Blades could be... Any paper, not a pay-per-view headliner, should be a fight night headliner type of a fight. If you give me Anthony Smith versus Ryan Spann, then I definitely deserve five rounds of Jarzinho versus Curtis Blades. I just feel like that fight's not getting the full respect that it deserves, but this is a great fight card. An absolutely great fight card. As of Monday, there's 14 on this card. We're going to break them down in incredible detail. So, without further ado, keep locked in with Fight Night Picks, and as we always say, let's, let's get, get into, into it. it. Tricky fight coming up this weekend in the featherweight division. We have a couple of the biggest guys you're going to find at 145 in Omar, Venezuelan fighter Morales, who's taking on, and it seems a little sacrilegious, but not GSP, it's JSP, Jonathan Pierce. And Matt, we have kind of a tale of two opposites, but they've kind of come together and mixed their fighting prides to make this fight. And that's why I say that this one's really tricky off the hop, because for me, when we're trying to whittle down the fight in the night screen at the start, there's a few outliers where we go, eh, but that probably won't be it, but it might be. It could be a fun fight. And this is one of those ones because for Omar Morales, a classically trained striker, this is a guy whose father back in Venezuela owned a karate studio and then came up with his own version of martial arts called Slam. Now, I don't know if you read the magazine in the early to mid 2000s, but Slam magazine was a giant deal. LeBron James was on there. Omar Morales' father. It still wasn't. is. It still is, but Omar Morales' father, different thing. But when you watch Omar fight, you can definitely see some differences in the way that he strikes. And he can really get it done in a lot of different ways. But he very much is a pressure fighter. And the reason why I say these guys have picked up some tricks of the trade and some fun is the fact that if you go back and watch Morales' last fight where he takes on a bodied up, hulking version of Shane Young... Omar really fought a complete game plan in that one. He did, and that's the thing about Omar Morales. He is a very cerebral fighter when he's in there, and that's something that you always kind of pick up on. He does like to pressure his opponents quite a bit, but it's really odd. Normally when we think about pressure fighters, we always associate volume with that pressure. Omar is kind of unique where he is pressuring you a lot, but he's not somebody who's just going to be throwing seven, eight punch combinations at you. He will kind of wait behind the jab, try to set up his power shots, but the odd thing about Morales is that he's not the most heavy-handed striker in the world. He 
can get it done with one shot here and there, but he is somebody who relies a lot more on setting up their combinations, and that's the really cool thing about his version of karate. I'm just gonna call it striking because he doesn't really fight like a traditional karate fighter would. We do think of like a Wonder Boy Thompson, somebody who stands sideways. He is more squared up to his opponent, more of like a, kind of a boxing stance almost, but the thing about Omar is that he does really like to go in there hard with that calf kick. He can himself be susceptible to it. We've seen that in some of his fights, but hey, when you're fighting guys like Giga Chikaze, they're going to kick your calf, and it's not the end of the world if you don't check all of them. This should be a really interesting fight, because I'm guilty of this, and I can openly admit this all the time. In life, you shouldn't let your losses define you. And that's just for anybody. I don't care what job it is. Before you say this, yes. we gotta break the fourth wall. There is a giant cloud of match judgment over Jonathan Pierce there because is. of this. And that's why I'm admitting it right up front. He got finished and looked awful by Joe Lozon, who again was so far past the hill he couldn't see it anymore. It's just one of those losses where in the moment it's like, wow. That really happened, and it did. And then, if you look at Pierce and his next rebound fight against Kai Kamaka the third, he looked much better, and he looked like a much more improved version. So even I might have to chalk up his first loss to just Octagon Jitters or being in there with a guy who had a lot more experience than he himself. So what I did, too, because that loss, it kind of clouds my judgment of Jonathan Pierce, too. So I went and did a deep dive of his entire career and his background even coming into martial arts. So I threw this one down here. In an interview that he did with Odds Checker, just a couple weeks ago from Canada's own James Lynch had a couple of different things he knew about this fighter he's known about it for six or seven weeks full camp for him obviously you assume Armour Morales got a full camp too but the really nice thing that he kind of touched on and then I wanted to add to he was a state runner up at Science Hill High School in wrestling so you know he has that wrestling in his back pocket but the real kicker of a quotable was I've never seen a striker out wrestle a wrestler I'm sure it's happened before, Jonathan. I'm sure it has, but that was what he was going with. Maybe a little bit of wordplay in the fact that he's going to wrestle with Omar Morales. Some guys have found success. Omar's only lost once. It was to a pure striker in Giga Chikadze where he got out-volumed, which is sometimes and normally his game. And it surprised me, I remember, even going into that fight. Why is Omar moving down a weight class? Because here's the thing. This guy is three weeks shy of his 36th birthday. He moved down to featherweight at a very advanced age, but that's where it gets even more interesting. With Omar Morales, you look at his overall activity. I'm going to throw this one out yet. There, these are all numbers. One fight in 2011, two fights in 2012, one in 2014, one in 2015, one in 2016, one in 2018, two in 2019, two in 2020, one in 2021. Not a lot of miles on the clock of Omar Morales. For him, he's coming out of Sanford MMA, training with the Burns brothers, Michael Chandler. You have some big fighters out of Sanford up near the top of this card. Of course, for Jonathan Pierce, he's coming out of one of the bigger, I wouldn't say up-and-coming gyms because they've been there, but fight ready with Eddie Chow, with Santino DeFranco, so many great training partners over there as well. For Pierce, he's continued to get better at his striking. Again, you saw that in the Kai Kamaka fight, but again, for Pierce to out-wrestle a good wrestler in Kamaka, and I get it, Kamaka's lost a lot in the UFC. So what? He's still a good wrestler when it comes down to the fundamentals. For Pierce to impose his will, to use his physicality, to use a little bit of his boxing, that's what I think makes this a great fight. Because Morales is a primary striker who's gotten better at wrestling and did really well against Shane Young in that respect. For Jonathan Pierce, he's a good wrestler. But he continues to get better at his striking. Now, Joe Lozon tagged him in those boxing exchanges, but that fight wasn't yesterday. That fight, if we're being honest, was almost two years ago. But he's still gotten better. He's supposed to take on Gabriel Benitez earlier this year. Benitez weighed 150.5. Pierce said no. So now we get this fight months later. 
overall, what's the takeaway here? This should be a really fun fight, and I do have high hopes for it, but I don't think a win over Kai Kamaka the third means that you can then go and beat a guy like Omar Morales. Because for Omar, we've only seen the one blemish, and that was against Giga Chikadze, and even in his other appearances. Like, he beat Gabriel Benitez and looked pretty good in that fight, and he yep. was sound defensively, too. That's the other thing about Omar. He's not one of these fighters who gives up defensively in pursuit of more offense. He is somebody who will stay shelled up. He doesn't overexert himself a lot, and that's why I do feel like we're going to see a more fresh version of him, and that's that's why I think he should be able to get a decision win. I'm not going to say anything crazy. I don't think he's going to get a finish over Jonathan Pierce, but I do think this will be a well-matched-up fight with Morales getting the win. If you look at the odds for this one, Morales open a minus 190 favorite. He's a minus 152 right now for Jonathan Pierce coming back. He opened a plus 165. He's at a plus 126. Again, over on best fight odds. If we have a look at Tapology, Matt, I haven't looked at the vote, so it's a surprise to us it is to you. Holy smokes. 893 total votes, 86% Morales, 84% by decision. For the 14% that have Pierce, 46% by decision, 36% by knockout. I actually do think, again, if Pierce is able to go in there and fight his fight, he is a great opportunity at a win, and especially by finish. He trains with great strikers, too, in this division. Crane Zombie's one of his training partners. And for Morales, again, I've already talked about that Sanford connection. I had a little bit of a tricky fight here. For Pierce, too, the one thing I wanted to say, he had one fight in his career at Bantamweight, five at Featherweight, six at Lightweight, one at 140, one at 145. So, again, weight really hasn't been his issue. But that, like just, Bale. that just goes to the fact that he's fought everywhere, and he's huge. He's six feet tall in this division. You don't see that very often. I like Omar Morales because of the pressure, because of how he can get reserved in the storm where Pierce is one of those guys that when he boxes, he just goes and goes and goes. And those firefights are great. Against Lozon, it wasn't good. Well, Kai Kamaka, you can kind of draw it out of him a little bit and then get into those wrestling exchanges. Just... Even like when Kamaka fought Tony Kelly. But for Morales, I like him in those exchanges because he can kind of wait, 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 pick a shot and then move forward. I like Morales in this fight, but... I see this one as being very tight. And again, those odds are just narrowing even closer. I just don't know where all this Kai Kamaka hype's coming from. It feels like when people beat him, then it's like, oh, now you're ready for a top 15 guy. Not really. Like, you even brought it up. We talked about Kai, Kam Kai Kamaka as a wrestler, but he got out-wrestled by what? The assistant wrestling coach to the high school of wherever like jonathan pierce isn't some guy who wrestled for penn state for four years he's a good science hill high school exactly he went to science hill high school he doesn't have some crazy collegiate background like curtis blaze for instance curtis blaze went to a junior college which people scoff at that but still at least he took some other route past nick, nick maximov on this card as well was a juco national there you champion. go exactly that means a lot more to me than you being the runner-up in your own state in high school those are credentials, but they are not weighted nearly as heavily as some of the rest of the credentials we will talk about with some of our fighters uh, further on up the card. I still like Omar Morales in this fight, what, but this is much better than the opening fights that we have been getting for a lot of cards recently, I will say. Matt's looking forward to this pay-per-view. Both of us going with Venezuela's own Omar Morales. Let us know down below in the comments section who you're taking in this fight. Two title fights up at the top. Murphy taking on Shevchenko. Then you have Ortega challenging Volkanovski. You're not going to want to miss. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks, as we always say. Let's get into it. 
Straight up, this is the oddest fight booking that I've ever seen since Gabby Garcia and Yumiko Hara. We have Matthew Semi the Jedi Semmelsberger taking on Martin Sano, and if you didn't know, now you know, because Martin Sano is coming into this card at 4-2-1. and one. Out of his last three fights, he's lost two of them. His last fight was a draw against Diego Herzog, and I'm just going to insert the Bellator clip right now. Gives us back again. You see a lot of inexperience here. Not good when the announcers are saying that. And I went back and I watched so much tape on Martin Snow to get ready for this one. Because really, you're taking a dart, you're throwing it at a board, and you're guessing as to who's going to win this one. And when you're guessing with a minus 400 favorite or thereabouts in Matt Semmelsberger, that's where the, this gets tricky. For Martin Sano, and I'm going to throw the tweet up there too. I threw it out there with this record and I said, can anybody logically tell me why he's on this card? Because look, he hasn't won a fight in years. His last win was seven years and five months ago over four and two Clint Roberts. And yes, there's tape of it out there and it's glorious and it's great. But why is he in the UFC? The reason why is because Nick Diaz wouldn't come back to the UFC without Martin Sano getting on the card. So that's why he's on this card. <laughs> Martin Sano to Nick Diaz is like Tristan Thompson to LeBron James. Like, hey, I'm not coming back unless he's coming with me. To me, he's kind of like the Jacob Malkoon to the Robert Whitaker, or he's like, well, Nick Diaz Academy's own Chris Avila. Remember Chris Avila? And then he was fighting Pretty Boy Taylor. But if we're really focusing in on this fight, I went back and watched a lot of Sano. So again, you look at it, he loses to Dominic Waters where there's a there's an eye poke in the first nine seconds of the fight. It's, it. it's from Waters to Sano. It bloodies up a little bit. They have a halfway competitive fight. But Dominic Waters wins that one overwhelmingly. Then he fights Don Muhammad over with Bellator and he gets finished quite quickly. And and then his last fight again against Diego Herzog. Let's really hone in on the Diego Herzog fight. You got a Nick Diaz fighter in Sano taking on American Kickboxing's own Herzog. Herzog goes in there hot and heavy in the first round. And quite honestly, I was surprised the fight didn't even get finished. It's a 10-8 for Herzog. He pounded away. He had Sano in all sorts of bad areas. And then he's gassed in the second and third round. The second round... I had it kind of 50-50. The third round, what Snow does, it's a classic technique. It was almost stalling to me, and he did it in the second round. He pushed Herzog up against the cage. He put his head right there, and then he just hammers away, kind of hits to the body. One shot here, one shot there, a little bit of knees. It's a boring second and third round, but ultimately it ends up the fight to draw. There's a couple of 28-28s in there, and I can go on and on about this fight, but I just, I wasn't... But you really don't have to. 28-28, 28-28, and then there was a 28-27. One of those judges saw it my way. I scored it for Herzog. All of this to say... Martin Snow could be on a three-fight losing streak coming into the UFC, taking on Matt Semmelsberger. Now, Semmelsberger, I've been on this hype train since he fought Carlton Minus in his debut. But if you look at it, he beats Minus. He looks great. He beats Jason Witte. He knocks him out. That age is like fine wine with the fight that Witt just had against Brian Barberina. And then he loses to Chaos Williams in a very, very close fight. So that one's close. And now he comes into this fight. Well, Martin Sano, we know he's good at jiu-jitsu with the Diaz brother connection, the high rollers BJJ. Matt Semmelsberger came in being a strong safety at Marriott, which is cool. But in MMA, he's kind of one of those all-or-nothing, long-range attacks with his punches and really good forward pressure and a nice offensive to round out his game. Matt Semmelsberger's going to win this fight by knockout. I wish I could say more than that, but like Martin Sano is only here because of Nick Diaz. That's it. I'm sorry. It'd be like if Tristan Thompson showed up to the All-Star weekend and he was like, hey, 
I play with LeBron during the week. Why can't I be here during the weekend? And they're like, no, this is for only the good fighters. Like, Martin Snow should not be taking this spot away from another MMA fighter. That's pretty much the whole point. Martin Snow, the only man to have submitted Jeff Neal that back in 2013. That is a real thing that happened in the world. That's that's real. Like Vicente Luque beating Tiago Santos. That happened. You think people think about it every day? They don't. But when you go to a party to watch UFC 266, you tell them Craig Allen told me that Vicente Luque beat Tiago Santos. Matt, I look at the odds for this fight. And again, they're silly because for Matthew Semmelsberg, he opened a minus 160 favorite. He's a minus 438 average on best fight odds. So no open a plus 140. He's a plus 332. And if we look over on topology, not a surprise to me. 914 total votes, 97% Semmelsberger, 80% by knockout for the 3% that have Sano. I take my papers and throw them out. Matt Semmelsberger should win this fight because, again, he's defensively sound. Yeah, he lost a few in his early career, and yes, he has been finished, but he continues to add gains out of crazy 88 MMA. He spent some time at Fit NHB getting ready for his last fight. Obviously, it didn't work out for him, but Tim Means, a main training partner there for that one. If Sano wins, the Diaz Army wins. If you're a Diaz Army fan, you let us know down below in the comments section because you also have Nick Maximov on this card and Nick himself, but Matt, both of us going Samuelsberger, right? <laughs> I got nothing to say, Craig. Matt adding so much to the audio version of this show, which you can find on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. But Matt, both of us going with the overwhelming favorite here. And a tweet that I sent out early in the week. I can't believe this is a real fight in the UFC that's going to happen. Both going Semmelsberger. I can't wait for the rest of this card. We have so many great fights that you're not going to want to miss. Just keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks, as we always say. Let's, Let's get, get into, into it. it. Big time fight coming up this weekend in a giant clash of styles and a UFC debut for a Nick Diaz Academy fighter. We have Nick Maximo making that debut at 6-0 as a pro. He went a perfect 6-0 as an amateur as well. And that happened all during the course of the summer of 2017. It's absolutely amazing. He's taking on Carl Robertson. As I'm editing this, I know I butchered it the whole video. I've always struggled saying Carl Robertson's name, so just keep that in mind. Carl Robertson, Nick Maximov. Almost like mauve, like the color. That's how he pronounced it on Contender Series. That's how the commentators say it. I watched a lot of it. Robertson, Maximov. You can use that with your friends on the weekend. Enjoy the fights. A guy who has had a weird UFC career, and they put him in there against some tricky, tricky opponents. He's lost all four of his pro fights within the promotion. One to Cesar Fajal, which was oddly enough a featured prelim to UFC 224. That was Pennington and Nunes. He also lost to Glover Teixeira by submission. Marvin Vittori by submission. Brennan Allen by submission. You see where I'm going with this one. Carl gets submitted. But the craziest stat is the fact that out of Carl's total nine wins... The majority of them come by submission. He is one of the odder fighters in terms of record and fight-wise that I can talk about because this is a guy that has a glory kickboxing pedigree. He just doesn't tend to fight that. And then if you look at the way that he loses in some of his fights, especially his last one against Brandon Allen, they go strike for strike. 
And all of a sudden, Bangkok Ready, Sanford MMA Zone, Brendan Allen is having the better of Carl in the striking exchanges. It's just been a weird bucket of muscles for this guy so far. That's why no one knows what Carl Robertson is or isn't good at. Because you bring it up. He has a glory background, so you'd assume he's going in there head kicking everybody. And he kind of does, but when he gets guys hurt, he will go for the submission. And normally, that's something I really like. That's one of my favorite skills an MMA fighter can have. I hurt you on the feet. Oh, I'm not going to waste all my energy going for the ground and pound. I can get this easy win via submission. Carl Robertson in a vacuum is a really great fighter, but the issue comes with his submission defense. And it's weird because normally submission offense and submission defense are tied. They go hand in hand. If you're good at one, you would have to be good at the other. But for what Carl Robertson's shown through his UFC career is, that doesn't have to be true. It's well, he had all this bad blood against Marvin Vittori, and then he goes in there and has a ton of success, and he looks amazing. And then Marvin Vittori does, like, a weird wrestling move, like a pro wrestling move, and then he gets in a great position and submits him. That's exactly it. Because that's all Carl Robertson fights. Carl Robertson... Carl Robertson fights because Robertson's a really interesting character. He's a great striker on the outside. I would say he's a poor striker on the inside, but that more has to do with his takedown defense than anything. Robertson is almost so much on the defensive, I would say at all times throughout a fight, that it's preventing him from letting his own hands go. This is kind of the thing that's going to happen if and when Alex Bahia makes his UFC debut. It's that, yes, you're a great kickboxer, but do the pure kickboxing skills translate to MMA? Because not having takedown defense is a pretty big problem in the world of MMA and not having submission defense is the same thing. And when you're fighting a guy like Nick Maximov, who he has a good but not great wrestling background. I know you'll get to it. It's not like he's a, a gold medalist or anything, but he has a collegiate background. He's a phenomenal jiu-jitsu practitioner. Like, he has all those skills that you look for when you're looking for a fighter that can go in there and beat a guy like Carl Robertson. When I look at it for Carl Robertson, I mean, it's one of those weird ones, again, where he can get taken down, but then sometimes he tries to take some guys down. And if you look at it for Nick Maximo, let's really talk about this one again. Perfect as a pro. You look at it before all of the fights that he had leading into Dana White's Contender Series. The overall record of those five opponents was 2-14. and 14, So it's not that great. And if you dive through it, plenty of finish wins. His only decision win was his last fight against Oscar Cota over on Dana White's Contender Series. Now in that fight, he wins by decision. Way too close of a fight than you'd want to see out of an uber prospect. But this is one of those guys that I think might translate into the UFC. And I say that because he looks like a bizarro American brother to the Laramie brothers that you might know and love. TJ's in the UFC. His younger brother, we might see someday. I don't know. But when I look at Nick Maximo, this is a guy that has a Juco all-American background in wrestling. So yes... He's very good. There are a lot of Juco guys that have had success. Not just guys on Last Chance U in football, but guys in wrestling as well. Maximo being one of those guys. He's one of the more credentialed brown belts that you're going to find competing in MMA that also competes in jiu-jitsu tournaments outside of it. But also, he's the type of guy that's going to list his idols as the Diaz brothers. So there is that much as well. But if you look at it in his last fight against Coda over on Contender Series... He didn't have a ton of success. It was a really close fight. But if you take a closer look at it, you'll see it on the screen. He weighed 209. You might go, did he miss weight at light heavyweight? No. He fought at heavyweight against a 263-pound toss-up of a guy. He had a little bit of an issue trying to take him down. But that's going to happen. So once you get to the ground, you're in Nick's world, so to speak. And I think Carl could have issues in those in-betweens, in those spots. But for Nick... If you go back and watch even his LFA fights, 
this guy really launches out and extends for a lot of his takedowns, and it's kind of not as natural as the Glover Teixeiras, the Marvin Vittori's, the Brendan Allen's. He could really get caught by a Carl Robertson type of attack here. He could, but I'm starting to look at Carl Robertson like I look at Alex Caceres at Featherweight. It's like, yeah, the strikes are flashy, but when you don't have any defensive attributes whatsoever, and that kind of does go for a striking defense too, because this is the thing about Robertson. He is so much on the defensive to where when you pressure him, he brings his hands down naturally. And when he brings his hands down, that leaves his own head wide open to be hit by strikes. If a guy like Brendan Allen can get from point A to point B on the feet to you that easily, and hey, Brendan Allen's made massive leaps within his striking game, but Still, I don't look at Brendan Allen as the gold standard for strikers at 185, and you wouldn't think that he'd be able to strike with a glory kickboxer like he was able to do with Robertson. I just don't think we... We were sold a false bill of goods, I think, on Carl Robertson, to be completely honest, and that's why I actually think Nick Maximo can spring the upset in this one. I mean, Maximo's been training with Richard Pris. You have to think the boxing will progress. He's only 23 years old coming into this one, and again, for Carl Robertson... I mean, he's only almost 31. He's a week away from 31. If we have a look at the odds for this one, Maximov open to minus 140 favorite. He's minus 111 right now for Carl Robertson. Roberson, you can say the same thing. Open to plus 120. He's now at about a minus 112. So they're pick'em odds right now. The votes over on Topology aren't very close. 929 of them so far. 72% for Maximov. 71% by submission for Carl. Robertson, 28%, uh, you know, 40% by knockout, 42% by decision. For me, I have a hard time with this one because for Nick, how good is striking? Because I haven't really seen great striking out of him. And he was fed opponents all the way up to Contender Series. Then he fights a 263-pounder. I've waited this long, so let me throw a bombshell at you. So I watched that performance against Coda, and I go, well, that's a middleweight fighting a heavyweight. This is like an openweight tournament with pride. Okay, what's Dana White going to say when he goes to give out the contracts? And for Nick, it's, well, I'm pretty sure he had to go to the hospital after that fight. So you don't necessarily love to see that he one. He fought a guy 60 pounds heavier than him. That's true. But Dana goes, okay, we're going to offer Nick an opportunity on the ultimate fighter. And then Nick doesn't go on the ultimate fighter. And now we give him a contract and he's here. So I don't know what to make of that. I don't necessarily love it. I mean, we saw that with Andre Petrosky. Same thing. This guy's destined to be on the Ultimate Fighter. Then he gets some tricky enough fights. He gets tired. He comes into the UFC. They give him a fight and they spoon feed him Gilmore. It kind of feels like that with Maximov. Like, okay, you had that fight against Coda. It was on super short notice. It was up to weight classes. Now you get Carl Roberson. Roberson. What do we do here? It, it is a really tricky fight for me and I can see why they're pick odds here. It's just because there's no confidence in either guy with one massive aspect of their game. With Carl Robertson, he has no ground game or no defensive ground game. And for Maximov, we do have so many question marks around his striking. This is what I normally go to, though. If you're a natural grappler against a natural striker, your boy Royce, Royce Gracie proved this a very long time ago. Jiu-Jitsu normally wins out. And that's why ever so slightly, I'm going to pick Nick Maximo. I just haven't seen enough out of Robertson throughout his USC career but to really be confident against him fighting a primary grappler. If Robertson was in there against other strikers, then yeah, I think he'd go in there and get great head kick knockout wins and we'd all think, hey, look how good of a striker he is. I just think with matchups like this, he's always going to come out on the other side and that's not the winning side. I like Baby K in this fight because of that experience. And I look at the losses. Cesar Fajaya is a primary primary grappler. That's exactly what Nick Maximov is. It, it goes totally against my point. 
But then if you look at the quality of opponents again, Marvin Vittori challenged for a title. Glover Teixeira will challenge for a title. Brandon Allen has continued to either incredibly underwhelm or look great. He's got a big test coming up against Brad Tavares. We'll find out. But he continues to grow leaps and bounds. For Carl, at the bare bones of it, he's a good striker. The fight starts on the feet. And for Maximov, I haven't seen him tested in that area. I think if he beats Carl Robertson, I get to gain a whole new appreciation for his game. This is a really tough test, though. And I like Carl by an ever so slight margin. So we'll see how this one goes. We'll see these guys in on way in day and maybe there's a change of a pick over on fight night picks question mark kicks two hours before the prelims but right now we're split on the pick i have carl roberson you have nick maximov this should be an absolutely amazing fight and i can't wait for it 14 on the card including two title fights up at the top you're not going to want to miss keep it locked in with fight night picks as we always say let's, let's get, get into it, it. Straight up, this is the most intriguing fight at women's flyweight on this entire card. And yes, there's a title fight up at the top. And I'm not joking. We have France's The Beast, Manofioro. She's going to be taking on Shitara Maeda Bueno Silva. And I absolutely love this matchup because you're just taking fire and pitting it against fire. And the odds are a lot closer than that co-main event. And I love this one because for Manofioro... Former The Fighter Champion with EFC, and yeah, EFC, their logo looks a lot like the UFC, and they have a show like The Ultimate Fighter that they just call The Fighter, but Manon was able to win that, then win the belt, she goes over with UAE Warriors, capitalizes on great opportunities in 2020, ends up in the UFC. To say that she's one of the most exciting fighters in this division, is that fair? Oh, without a doubt. She is very unique in this division because she's not just an aggressive puncher that then gets knockouts. She's a technical knockout artist, and that's not something that we have very many of in the whole of the UFC. Like, Santiago Ponzinibbio's one at 170. Weird name that I thought of, but still. I would say Manofiolo kind of fights in that style. Many fighters at this weight division, or many prospects even, look at Macy Barber, for instance. She can get knockout wins, but it's a lot of wild looping hooks and just her being aggressive. Manofiolo can wait behind the jabs, set up combinations, throw her kicks along with her punches. Like, she's not only a very exciting prospect, she's a legit prospect who I see with a very high ceiling in this division. She has a great opportunity to hurt fighters when she's even on the back foot. We rarely ever see that, but when she's moving forward, she's like the Maria Sharapova of MMA because it's a lot of ha-ha. But the other thing that she does great, a great sidekick to the body. You see that work with great effect in just about every single fight. She also throws those great combinations. My favorite shot of hers, and I had to write it down, that left straight to go with those kicks. Oh. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm already thinking about the kicks. I know they're coming because they can come. It could be a question mark kick. It could be a prodding kick to the, to the side, to the liver. It could be a shot to the thigh. It could be a shot to the leg. You have to think so much. And then she throws her left hand out there. It's like, holy smokes, what are we dealing with here? Well, now she's going to be taking on Maeda Buena Silva, a fighter who has flames tattooed on her arm, which is so 2000 and late. But you, you also have to worry about her because she's a shoot-to-box fighter. And, of course, you're going to see Gloria De Paula in her corner, who's also in the UFC, has a fight coming up of her own. But for Buena Silva in the UFC, she beats Mayana Souza over on Contender Series a very long time ago. Comes in off the bat and submits Jillian Robertson. Now, in 2021... That might not come as a surprise. But back then, it was like, wow. Maeda Buena Silva, this is something special. She then loses to Marina Moroz. Okay, <laughs> you can get out volume by Moroz, and that's what happened. She comes back out and submits Mara Romero Barella. 
That's halfway impressive. Then in her last fight, it's a majority draw against Montana De La Rosa. And I had to go back and watch that fight to really understand why. Because to me, Maida Buena Silva won that fight. And to a lot of people, she won that fight. Except she lost a point for an egregious fence grab. In the first round, that's why it's a draw. If that didn't happen, Maida Buena Silva would have won that fight. The judges' scorecards, 2 28 one 28 Diego Herzog would have beaten Martin Sano earlier on when I was talking about these fights. Maeda Buena Silva would have also beat De La Rosa if it wasn't for that fence grab. And the other thing for Maeda Buena Silva, like the stats maybe don't paint a great picture. And she's had a little bit of a UFC run. Again, that's going to count that fight that she had on Contender Series. You look at it. She's never been able to get a takedown, but when she's on the ground, that's when she's really slick and slippery, and she's going to attempt a lot of submissions with just brute force and strength. The other thing, negative strike differential, which isn't great, but a good strike accuracy. I never bring up strike totals anymore. Two, three years ago, fight name pick, sure, you used to do it all the time. Manuel Fioro, so far in the UFC, has video game stats in two fights. She finishes poor Victoria Leonardo, and then she's supposed to fight Marina Moreau, so we would have had that connection. Moreau's out, so on short notice, they bring in Tabitha Ricci, who didn't stand that a gosh darn chance, and she just teed off and made her nose look like a stick of butter. So for me, I love this fight because you get fire and fire, and I love those matchups. And at 125, finishing abilities, maybe not there for a lot of fighters. Both of these fighters can finish fights, and that's what makes this one so much fun. And just to expand a little bit more upon my Buena Silva's submission ability off her back, like, just go back and watch Jillian Robertson fight. That's how Buena Silva gets her win. Because you have to remember, Robertson was just coming off of choking the life out of Molly McCann, and it was disgusting when it happened. So people just kind of figure, like, wow, that is the jiu-jitsu ace for the division. And then Buena Silva comes in, and she's like, no, 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 Dikembe Mutombo's style and gets an armbar off of her back from her guard. It's so hard to get submissions off your back at the UFC level and the fact that Bueno Silva was able to do that against another primary grappler just speaks volumes about how good of a grappler Silva is. My big issue with this fight though is that not only does Bueno Silva at or lack the wrestling to get Fioho down to the mat, I don't love her ability to close the distance either or to strike on the outside. I really do feel like this fight's going to be Mano Fioho setting up her combinations over and over and over again because for Silva, I just don't know what her plan B is. I know what her plan A is. It's going to be to try to drag Fioho down to the mat. But if she's not able to do that, I don't think she's going to be able to outstrike Fioho for any period of time in this fight. So if she's not able to uh, at least get into a grappling sequence, I just don't know where Silva's going to be able to win her moments or her rounds in this fight. Well, and it's tricky because for Silva, she doesn't have to kind of take the fight to the mat herself. She can get taken down and then really kind of work her game either way. It's almost like... And it's, it's a watered-down version. It's almost like a Mackenzie Dern. Okay, if the fight's on the mat, I can still have success here. When I throw my hands and I throw in combination, I have a lot of success. But that's it. She gets hit a lot, too. And for Fioro, she's shown a propensity not to get hit. She's good in the clinch. And then if we go back to her fights with UA Warriors, she fights a Canadian pure grappler in Corinne Laframboise. And then she gets the fight to the mat, and I went, oh, this is bad. Because Karin's record's not good. But she is a very, very good grappler. And Manon has a lot of success there. And out of some of her other fights, like, okay, I don't worry about her as much as I would out of a pure striker. She's somebody that had so much success on the IMMAF scene. We've seen a lot of different guys uh, and gals that have had success there move up through the ranks, and then boom, you're a great fighter. Or... 
you're burning the candle at both ends. You burnt yourself out as an amateur. So you get either or. But Matt, I look at the odds for this one. Fiero open a minus 400 favorite. She's minus 266 right now in best fight odds. For Bueno Silva, she opened a plus 330. She's plus 212 right now. I haven't looked at the topology votes, but I don't expect them to be overly close. And they're not. 958 total votes. 89% Fyodo, 32% by decision, 62% by knockout. For the 11% that have Bueno Silva, 49% by decision, 32% by submission. It is worth noting her only loss was against a volume striker and a small fighter in Marina Moroz. So we'll see what happens there. I see this one being a knock him out, drag him out type of fight. I think Manofiero is going to be able to win because she's going to be able to keep that distance. And if the fight doesn't go to the mat, Fiero wins nine times out of ten, as the voters would suggest. So I do like Manofiero here. I think she has a huge ceiling. Buena Silva comes from a traditional striking background as well. But Fiero, I just think, wins out. I just think there's levels to it when it does come to the striking. And the fact that Silva doesn't really have the wrestling credentials to just go out there and give me a takedown when I need it. Like, there's a lot of fighters out there who maybe wrestling's not their number one attribute, but at the end of the day, like Alexander Volkanovsky, here's a good example. Like, he doesn't just go out there to wrestle, but when he needs a takedown, I'm pretty comfortable with Alexander Second Holloway fight. Exactly. I'm pretty comfortable with him deciding to go for a takedown. But her Silva's kind of like that. I can't believe I just compared her to Alexander Volkanovsky. She doesn't really have the wrestling component, but... Like you said, if she is able to get the fight to the mat, Silva will have a chance to win. I just really like Fiero in this. I do think that she has a high ceiling, and I don't want to make this—I uh, don't want to make this prediction yet. But I do feel like Fiero is one of the few fighters that I'm interested in seeing fight Shevchenko at some point throughout her career. There's not many fighters in this division right now who can say I can offer Valentina Shevchenko something on the feet because a lot of these matchups, it's well Jennifer Maya, how's she gonna get done? It's in the grappling. All these fighters, it seems to be oh, can they then go out there and out grapple Valentina Shevchenko? I think Fiero might have the real answer. It's I don't have to go out there and out grapple you. I just have to go out there and out volume you. And I think Fiero could have that kind of a style. She wins this fight. And I think she even skips the Barbers and the Miranda Mavericks as well. Good the point. fighters that will probably cause her the most difficulty. And then you're fighting the Calderwoods, the Eyes, the recognizable names. Not to say that Buena Silva isn't, but... Jessica I does not want to get into a cage with Manofioro. Not at all. So, Matt, both of us going with France's own. The Beast, Manofioro, to get the win. I can't wait for this fight. 14 on this card. Three are five rounders up at the top. You're not going to want to miss. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. As we always say, let's get into it. One of my absolute favorite fights coming up this weekend, we have Joe Rogan's new favorite fighter, Uros Medic, taking on the tarantula, Jalen Turner. Matt, do you know why they call him the tarantula? Because he's like six foot three and all legs and arms? Because he has over 200 spiders. And for Jalen Turner, this guy has been so tricky so far in the UFC. He debuted almost three years ago against Vicente Luque. Now, obviously, he loses that fight, but then he comes back to beat Callum Potter, lose to Matt Frivola, beat Joshua Kulibau and Brock Weaver. Both of those wins by finish. So, a little bit of hype following a guy who's trained at some very big gyms in his own right with Ruka Sport, as well as Carlson Gracie Rivers side and i mix smash and riverside carlson gracie it all encompasses the fact that he is a very well sought after prospect the guy has range he has length and if it was his easy top song yeah he'd probably have legs because he is a very long and rangy guy for this division he is taking on serbia's and alaska's own uber prospect urosh medic this guy again 
Joe Rogan was talking about him, so he had to be something special. We had a great feature ahead of his debut against Alon Cruz's last time out. Let's throw it on over to the 15-minute car breaks rookie review for Uros Medic. We have Serbia's own Uros Medic taking on Elon Cruz. And listen, I'm sure there's people out there from Serbia that are absolutely going to butcher me on the name pronunciation. I went back and watched all of Uros's fights. Very interesting stuff. So he comes at us from Alaska FC. He had his first five fights over there. He debuted at middleweight, had four fights at welterweight, and then his last fight over on Contender Series at 155 pounds. He comes into this one at lightweight as well. Every single win's been pretty well a knockout, and that's the thing. I mean, the guy gets it done in a lot of different ways. He's one of those fighters that has a very long stance, and you'll see that. He's going to be one of the bigger lightweights you're ever going to see out there. For Udo Schmidic, the trouble for me is he comes into this fight, and you look at the level of competition that he had with Alaska FC. I've compared Alaska FC to a lot of different things. They're kind of like the WLF wars of, well that one state that's super north and super west of all the other ones because you had no idea what you're going to get. WLF Wars, who have we gotten out of there? Well, you've had what? Song Yudong that's on this card. And then you've had other fighters that have been just absolutely hot garbage. Like, it's really hard to tell. Yeah. Level of competition's not all that great. For Udo Schmidic, if you want to see a really fun fight and some of the dynamic movements that he can do, go back and watch the fight against Alonzo, and this is a tough last name, but Alonzo Leesholm Jr., and he does a crazy Granby roll in that one. But overall, he outmatched his competition big time when he was on the regional scene. And then if you look at his last fight against Mikey Gonzalez, Gonzalez was kind of small for the fight. And he moved up a weight class, so they had said on the broadcast. He was a karate guy, so he's spinning a lot of, well, spinning kicks and missing on them and getting tired. And it just looked like a total mismatch of a fight to me. For Uros Medic, I think this is going to be an interesting fight for him, and I think this isn't a setup fight for him, but I do think the UFC is more invested in the future of Medic than they are the future of Alan Cruz. And here's the thing, coming out from AFC, you can either be Jared Cannonier, fighting a bunch of different weight classes, be amazing. I know he lost to Whitaker, but Whitaker's one of the better fighters in the UFC. Or Justin Buckholz. Or it could be Justin Buckholz, <laughs> Gina Mazzani, we could throw her in there. There's just such a mixed bag coming from that promotion that it really is hard to kind of place their ceiling. And here's the honest truth. You can say that about any organization outside the UFC. But here's the thing. In this fight, I don't think Medici is going to face any of those issues that we think might be there in the future. I haven't seen him fight that upper echelon wrestler at 155. He's going to have to do that at some point. This is just a great kind of introduction to the UFC audience. And I know I said it on the first video how, oh, these young fighters, they realize that there is more pressure. For Medici, I think the pressure's there, but the fact that he is fighting someone who stylistically will be in front of him, not to be hit because he can keep he can keep the fight at such a range with his kicks that he won't always be so hittable. But if you're Medici, constant pressure will win you this fight eventually. You're not going to get to him after that first punch. You might not hit him on the second punch, but as long as you throw in combination and really make sure that you are dedicated to that third, fourth, fifth strike in your combination, you will eventually get to Alon Cruz. The last thing on Medici. I don't know if he's going to be in the top 15. I don't know if he's going to be at lightweight for the rest of his career. Because you had mentioned it. He's fought from middleweight down. Elon Cruz is the opposite. He's meeting him at lightweight from featherweight. So I'm not, again, these are two of the bigger guys in the division. Although Cruz is moving up. But it will be interesting just to see the physicality of these two and how it does match up. Alright, so the crazy thing about Medich. This guy is still at King's MMA. And from his Instagram, I gain intel on other fighters that were on this card. Because he's training with the likes of, yeah, the Marvin Vittori's, half 
Rafael Cordero, but also Nazareth Hackpress, who's on this card. You absolutely love to see it. Matt, I know you really like that debut out of Medich. What did you see from him that we kind of learned or gained a little bit of perspective on? Well, this is our big issue with Medich coming into the UFC. It's yes, the finishes are great. It's all fantastic, but the level of competition really does matter. And maybe Alon Cruz isn't at the top of the list for, you know, the hardest UFC debuts ever, but still, you have to beat whoever's in front of you. Uros Medich did that. He lands flying knees. He lands spinning elbows. Like, he is an offensive dynamo, and that's really how you have to describe Uros Medich's game. He's really unique because he is one of the taller and rangier guys for this division, but you can't really get away with saying that about either guy because both of these guys normally have that luxury of being the taller guy in there, being the longer guy in there. So it will be really interesting to see how these guys match up physically because Jalen Turner has a lot of tools that I really like on the outside. He's got a great teep kick to that like front leg. It's very Neil Magny-esque. He's got a good jab. He's got a good right hand. But my issue with Jalen and Turner has always been on the mid-range and those guys who can get on the inside of his reach. Matt Favola isn't a great striker by any means, but what he was able to do was fade on the outside, get on the inside, and use his wrestling to then take advantage of some of those, I, I guess, defensive shortcomings on the inside that Jalen Turner has. I'm really interested to see how Uros Medic attacks this fight, because if he does stay on the outside with his range, then these guys could both just be trading jabs one for one the whole entire fight until someone really does decide to take that first step forward and start to put a combination together. With Jalen Turner, I think he's the more well-rounded out of these two. We have seen a little bit of his wrestling. We've seen their ground game a little bit more than what we've seen out of Medich. But my big concern out of Jalen Turner is, how does he respond to the pressure of Medich in this fight? Because if he is just backing up in a straight line like he has had the susceptibility of doing, then if Medich just puts together two or three punches, I think he will land a big power shot at some point. But if Jalen Turner can say, okay, I'm going to stand guard here, I'm going to use my jab, and I'm going to be the one walking forward it'll be interesting because with Medich he's one of those 50-50 fighters if he does respond to volume or if he does respond to pressure with more activity then I think he'll be in great shape throughout this fight but if he is one of those fighters like even Yuri Prohoshka all through in there where you're almost so erratic that when guys are really technical they can start to get to you then I think Jalen Turner actually has a way to win this fight when I went back and watched tape on both of these guys I think you're right I mean for Uros Medich he's probably going to be the guy out of these two that will initiate his wrestling with Jalen Turner Turner, the one other kick that he really does throw well, and they always make a point of saying it on the commentary, so you're probably not hearing anything new, but it's the fact that he doesn't necessarily throw a teep kick to the body, it's more of a prodding front kick, it does have quite a bit of force behind it. I really do like that. Again, for Jalen Turner, he's one of those pop-pop. He goes jab and then throws the cross. And if there's a lot of power on it, you saw it have a concussive type of effect to Brock Weaver when he was able to get the win there. And then again, the win before that, Joshua Cullibau, yes, that was on short notice. Yes, that was weird in terms of what they ended up weighing going into the fight. However... That seems to age like fine wine with the way that Joshua Cullibau's looked in the UFC. And I remember previewing that fight going... Man, I don't even know what to tell you about Kalibau because it wasn't that impressive coming into the UFC. He didn't really seem to have all those tools, especially moving up a weight class. But at 145, he's looked good. So, again, it continues to look better. Similar to when Turner comes in, fights at 170 against Luke. What do you really learn out of that? Not a lot. So I absolutely do love this fight because it could be one way, it could be the other way. And out of this, we're going to learn a lot about these two guys that I still do, even with Turner having 15 pro fights, I still would say a prospect. I need to see a little bit more out of these guys. The odds for this fight, Medich opened the favorite at a minus 185. He's now minus 123 over on best fight odds. For Jalen Turner, opened the underdog a plus 160. He's roughly around a plus 101 right now. 
We haven't seen the Tapology votes. I'm really eager to see them. Wow, 960 total votes, 84% Medich, 78% by knockout for the 16% that have Turner, 44% by knockout, 40% by decision. Again, stylistically, I absolutely love what both of these guys do, and I think they definitely pose a problem for a lot of the guys in this division. Also interesting to note, Turner's the younger fighter here too. Who would have thought that? Exactly. It is really wild. But these are two of the more exciting prospects in this division because I would also consider Jalen Turner a prospect. You can't go from fighting Vicente Luque at 170 pounds to then just being like, oh, we're going to keep you in the deep end of the pool. Like these are the fights that Jalen Turner should be having. Tyrion Ware had that experience. Yeah, Tyrion Ware fought four killers. And they were like, bye, Tyrion. It's like, okay, that wasn't very fair. Here's the problem that I do have with Jalen Turner. If Medich does get on the inside of his punching range, Jalen Turner doesn't really have the wrestling offensive to then decide, okay, I'm going to decide to take you down after we clinch up. And I do worry about Turner's punching power compared to Uro's Medich's because Medich is by far the more powerful guy out of these two, I would say. I think it could run into a shot by Jalen Turner, but this is the real key. If Medich is jumping into the pocket, I think Turner can catch him with a counter shot and probably hurt him. If Medich is fainting his way into the the pocket and then answering with combinations I think he has a good chance of catching Jalen Turner with a power shot and I do think I'm going to slightly favor Uros Medich in this one. I do like his face from the outside not by the traditional sense of like an Israel Adesanya where it's like you actually see like him twitching his hips and stuff making his opponent think. What Medich does do is he has great movement on the outside and I do feel like that could stifle Jalen Turner on those in-betweens. I do think Turner can pick up minutes I guess or even rounds in this fight but I do think at a certain point Medich is going to find his way in the inside and land a big shot. I think for Turner being that prospect, getting better every day with, and now I knew I would make the mistake. So Carlson Gracie Riverside, because I had it written down, but really working your ground game there with the wrestling offensive that we've seen from Medich. And you talk about a guy that's fought in all different weight classes that we had in the rookie review. It's kind of crazy that he started in and around middleweight. Now he's down here at lightweight and fitting in perfectly. Again, another one of the bigger guys you're going to find in the lower weight classes. But for Turner at Gracie, but as well a Ruka sport and I know that people didn't love his last performance he's got a big fight coming up but Rafa Garcia a guy that can really make it tough he's going to grab the back of your head he's going to throw those uppercuts nice and in tight but get you ready for a fight like this if they even cross pass at Ruka sport I think there's a lot of things to like out of Turner's game especially from the outside too now if he's like the Luke Rockhold I'm just going to lean back and leave my chin out there that's an issue because Medich is one of those guys that can crash forward throw those looping hooks to try and really set up his wrestling game I think Medich can have a lot of success there but I do like Turner's well-roundedness I like that one too I like those prodding kicks whether it's to the leg whether it's a, a sneaky little oblique kick or that prodding front kick to the stomach I like a lot of things out of Turner's game so as an underdog I can see value but Medich man this guy is a full head of steam and if he wins man strap a rocket ship to his back because again that Joe Rogan podcast by day all night and I know I butchered that we're gonna have to get it right before the Nick Diaz fight but Medich already has that. Now you're on another pay-per-view with Rogan. That could be a great opportunity. <laughs> Not to bring up Vicente Luque's name again, but this feels like the fight where Uros Medich can go from either being like a Nico Price type where you can have a lot of fun fights, but you might win one and lose one. Or if he goes out there, looks really technical and can get a finish win, then that Vicente Luque is a similar comp of a type of fighter that Medich could become. Absolutely love this fight. We're split on the picks, so you know it's going to be a good one. Matt has Medich. I have Jalen Turner. Can't wait for this fight card it should be a great one five round fights there are three of them up at the tops so keep it locked in with fight night picks and as we always say let's get into it
Happy birthday on Friday, Roxanne Modafferi turns 39, and unfortunately, or fortunately for her, on Saturday, she has to fight Brazil's Tyla Santos in an absolute changing of the guard type of fight. There's a possibility for that, and for Roxanne Modafferi, you know exactly what she's going to bring to the cage. And if I could illustrate it a little bit, it's like watching Matt walk on the streets of Fredericton. You go, geez, that's wonky, that looks really weird, because she comes wow. in here... She's throwing elbows, she's throwing knees, she's throwing weird movement at you. She's wearing those judo Dan Kelly knee braces. I'm just tall and lanky, but thanks for the call. It's the same thing every single time out there. And listen, 25 haven't figured it out. 18 have, but 25 haven't. And for Roxanne, I mean, you look at it. The five on in, big names. She loses to Jennifer Maya. She beats Macy Barber. She loses to Lauren Murphy, who's challenging for the title. She beats Andrea Lee. She loses to Viviani Arujo. There's no shame in those losses. Two of them are title challengers. And Viviani, I think if she had cardio, she could challenge for the title. I really do. Now, for Roxanne Modafferi, she's going to be taking on Tyla Santos. And this is where you can kind of talk about camps. I mean, for Santos, Astra Fight Team, she's had bigger names in her camp. And she's been a part of some bigger name camps in Brazil. But mainly out of that gym, you might know Alex Leco da Silva. Michael Bisming said he was going to be a big deal at lightweight in the UFC. And that's true. I'm not, I'm not making that up. That's real. For Modafferi, she comes out of a big gym in Syndicate MMA. Joanne Calderwood, her friend, Serena DeJesus, just beat Lauren Mueller with Invicta. So there's that. Uh, but that's about where that ends for me. Roxanne Modafferi is that litmus test. And for a time or two, it was like top 10 in the UFC. Now it's more top 15. For Tyla Santos so far... We doubted her, and it was the biggest whiff in Fight Night Picks history because we sold you wolf tickets on Molly McCann, and Santos handled her. But Matt, the last time Santos went out and fought Jillian Robertson, and listen, we joke around and make fun of Matt looking awkward and weird. This is where, yeah, exactly. You had Robertson, I had Santos, but not even I thought that Santos was just going to dominate Robertson in every aspect. Striking, grappling, physical imposition. It was an absolute masterclass by Tala Santos. Now, she's been out for a bit. That fight was eight months ago. Not necessarily her fault because there's been a fight booked in the interim. But now she gets that name where it's like, okay, if Santos wins this fight, I mean, it's like French Montana. We're all the way up. And that's my only rap reference for this week. But she has an, a great opportunity there. Modafferi can play spoiler, and that's about all I can say. So while you reference rap, I'll reference Ric Flair. To be the man, you have to beat the man. And in WWE, that normally applies to you beat Ric Flair, then you can be a big star. In the women's flyweight division, to be the woman to fight for the title, you have to at least beat Roxanne Modafferi by unanimous decision at some point along the way. I don't make the rules, guys. It's just what they are. And that's the thing about Roxanne. It's not like she's going out there and getting finished in all her fights. And it's not like her fights aren't competitive. That's the real big thing that you have to remind yourself. The last one wasn't. It wasn't, but it's not like she just got finished by a vastly superior fighter. She was at least showing that, hey, in the third round, there are some holes in Araujo's game. And that's kind of what I look at Roxanne Modafferi as at this stage of her career. I don't know a lot about cars. You would know this. What's that thing you put into a car where you test it and it tells you what's wrong with it? A code reader. So a code reader. Roxanne Modafferi is kind of like a code reader for this division. She might not go out there and get a lot of wins, but she's really good at showing the flaws in her opponent. And that's what we're going to probably learn in this fight. I have no doubt that Tyler Santos is going to win this fight. But what I do think we're going to see in this is Santos is going to have a weakness that we didn't see. Either she's not going to look as good in the third round. Maybe at 
at some point, the pressure's getting to her. Maybe she gets taken down. Crazier things have happened. I'm just saying, when you fight Roxanne Montefiore, she is so well-rounded that she is going to bring out some wrinkle of your game that you might not be as confident with as you are with the other aspects. Because against Jillian Robertson, Tyler Santos showed that she was more well-rounded than I think either one of us believed in. I think this is the fight that almost brings us back a little step. Where it's like, hey, you beat Roxanne Montefiore, but remember in the second round when she got her back taken? Remember in the third round when she started to look a little tired? Those might be the conversations that we're having leaving this fight, but I still am pretty confident with Santos getting a win. Montefiore is a 50-50 fighter like fellow Canadian Alexis Davis is. It's that gut check of, oh, this second round? Alexis Davis always wins second rounds, and then the third round's really close. You look at it in her last fight up at Bantamweight against Panny Kianzad. I thought Alexis Davis won that fight. Tyler Santos has had one of those fights. It was her UFC debut. Now, maybe it was jitters. Maybe it was nerves. Maybe it was an injury. She lost a split decision to a 50-50 fighter in Mara Romero Barella. That record's not great. Italy, yikes. But when I look at this one, yeah, it is tricky. You look at the odds for this fight, and Santos open a minus 225 favorite. She's a minus 396 right now. Modafferi open a plus 190. She's plus 300. Can Santos pass the test? I think so. Here's the thing. The odds are always way off on a Montefiore fight like they are for a Dan Kelly fight. I don't know what it is about the knee wraps, but betters hate it. And it makes sense. Normally your knees are wrapped because there's something wrong with them to begin with. But Roxanne Montefiore is always much bigger of an underdog than she probably deserves to be for all the reasons that we brought up. She's not a fighter who goes out there and gets finished early on. She is going to at least make it to that final bell. And cardio and toughness can take you pretty far. I don't think it's going to be far enough to get a win over someone like Tyler Santos because this is the problem with Roxanne Montefiore that now we're running into. When we talk about, for instance, Santos is 28 years old. I have friends who are like close enough to 28. I'm 22. I don't know anybody who's 39. I don't hang out with anyone Roxanne's age. Like, just Matt, when you Matt, look Matt at was, Roxanne's Matt was record, five when Roxanne Montefiore made her pro MMA That debut. was what I was just about to say. Roxanne made her pro debut in 2003. I was in kindergarten in that year. It's been a while. Like, she's been around. She's been doing MMA for about as long as I've been learning things, she, and that's never a great sign. She's kind of like MMA's Jamie Moyer, Bartolo Colon, and then if you want another reference, Chris Chelios, if you're a hockey fan. Just doing it at those advanced ages and still having success. But yeah, when I look at this fight, Tyler Santos can impose her physical will against a lot of these women in this division. The wrestling's there. The grappling's there. The striking's there. I like her in a lot of different positions. I like Tyler Santos in this fight. Do I love her at a minus 400? No. So that scares me away because Montefiore's been that gut check. She beat Macy Barber, who was going to become the youngest champion in UFC history. We know that's not going to happen now. She was able to get a win over Andrea Lee, too, by decision, who, again, is competitive against the top 15 in this division. So we're going to learn a lot this weekend, but I like Tyler Santos here. And uh, the last thing I'm going to say about this fight, we're finally seeing a big turnover in this division, which is really nice. I know Lauren Murphy's finally getting her title shot, and she is one of the, I would say, more mainstays of the division, if you will, because she came off the Ultimate Fighter, used to fight at 135 pounds. But there's a lot of new young talent in this division that's making it really fun. You have fighters like Tyler Santos, fighters like Miranda Maverick. I know she lost to Macy Barber, but still, there's a lot of young, exciting, fun contenders. Manofio Ho is another one to throw in there. So it's just nice to see that we're finally starting to get this overlap or change in the division. Sort of out with the Roxanne Montefiore, that sounds awful to say, and in with a, not a lot of new young talent. Matt, both of us going with Tyler 
Santos in this fight. I absolutely love it. And all jokes aside, you have a big fight at 125 mm. all the way up at the tippy top. Shevchenko is taking on Lauren Murphy. And in the main event, Volkanovski Ortega, you're not going to want to miss it. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks, as we always say. Let's, Let's get, get into it. Number seven. Ranked heavyweights coming up this weekend. We have the seventh ranked Shamil Durkimov and full transparency before we started. I might even include it. Matt goes number seven. Shamil Durkimov, he's taking on your, where is he? Tenth ranked Chris Dawkins. And yes, he's Kyle's brother. And in this fight for Kyle's brother, I joke, he's looked insane so far in the UFC. I didn't expect any of this out of Chris Dawkins. I knew he was good representing Martinez BJJ. But holy smokes, I mean, you look at the loss to Sean Teed back in 2015. He was supposed to rematch with Sean Teed at the start of 2020. He gets the call up to the UFC, fights Parker Porter, and the rest is history. Knocks him out. Knocks out Nascimento. Knocks out Alexei Olenek. And in the Olenek fight, it was like, okay, Olenek's a wizard on the ground. We know this. Sergey Spivak learned that, even though he won. But you know how good Olenek can be. And in those exchanges up against the fence... That's where Chris Dock is Sean, and even in some of his other fights, the fight against Azunia Anyan Wu that was in the UFC, that was in Bellator, Dawkins was putting it on him until he got clipped and he got finished in that fight. Dawkins is great up against the cage. He's one of those guys that moves forward with the long looping, I'd say short hooks, but they're so long that they don't really move way out. But he just walks forward, boxes guys' ears in, and finishes them. But the one thing that we haven't seen, Matt, out of Chris Dawkins, and hopefully for him he doesn't have to showcase it in this fight, what is it? His grappling. It's weird. Chris Dawkins is probably number one skill set is his grappling, but we haven't even seen it yet in the UFC. And that's the craziest thing. Like, it would be one thing if he's going out there dropping guys with his hands and then submitting them after they're on the ground. It's not enough for him to do that, though. He's just going out and finishing guys with his hands, and that's extremely impressive because it's weird. There's almost like this new wave of heavyweights all of a sudden, and they're a little bit smaller than all these other heavyweights. You have guys like Tom Aspinall, guys like Chris Dawkins, who you might look at them and you're like, oh, well, they're not nearly as big as like Derek Lewis or Francis Ngannou or a lot of these other guys in the division. It doesn't matter though. It was something that we brought up in the Adrian Yanez Randy Costa fight. Speed matters, and speed in heavyweight is absolutely important. And the fact that Chris Dawkins can basically walk into most of these fights knowing that he's not only slightly faster, he's so much faster than most of these guys, especially in the striking. It must be a huge confidence booster for him. You look at Chris Dawkins, and so far in the UFC, he's gone down in weight. And in the fight against Parker Porter, let's bring it up. He weighed in at 241. Then he fought Rodrigo Nascimento. He weighed in at 227. For his last fight, he weighed 234. So he did go up a little bit. But I honestly thought, hey, okay, the move's to light heavyweight. That was what his exactly. plan was. But now all of a sudden, he's ranked at heavyweight, taking on the seventh-ranked Shamil Durkimov. And the weird thing is, we haven't heard of him in forever. He was booked in fights last year against Cyril Gaon. But I'm going to try and read this one properly. Gaon withdrew from the fight due to pneumothorax. Did I get that one correct? People out there, let me know. Then Abdurkimov withdrew out of their second fight. Abdurkimov's supposed to fight Augusto Sakai back a few months ago. But Sakai got rebooked, and now we end up with a Durkimov here. The weirdest thing about Shamil Durkimov, and well, it's one weird thing. I watched his last fight at Buffalo Wild Wings in Bangor, Maine. Before I went to, it was called School of Hard Knocks with NEF. And I covered that fight card. Rob Font was there. Wow. Rob Font was there. Not fighting, but he was there. I saw him. I talked to referee John English for, you want the whole story. But I watched that fight. It was me and my wife at B-Dub-Dubs. Like, it's a big deal. We don't have B-Dub-Dubs in no. Brunswick. So we watched that pizza. fight. 
we ended up uh, leaving after that. It was a great trip, but the point of it is, I remember that Curtis Blades fight, like the back of my hand, because it was all Curtis Blades doing what normally Shamil Durkimov does to most other fighters. And it was really weird, and I do think Shamil Durkimov is one of those fighters where offensively, yes, his grappling's very good, but if you can actually get him on the defensive and on the back foot, he does struggle off of his back. I know he's got really good grappling, but again, when you kind of get past almost welterweight, like even middleweight, light heavyweight, and heavyweight, it's very rare to see submissions off guys' backs unless you're like Fabricio Verdum or Jacare Souza. And even Jacare doesn't have a lot of submissions off his back. So the bigger you are, it's harder to really uh, use your weight and to move another guy around like that. So for Shamil Abdurakimov, I think he's going to have areas where he might have slight amounts of success in this fight, but other than just the offensive takedown, I don't think he can strike with Chris Dawkins at all. I don't think he has the hand speed or the technique to be on the feet with Dawkins, and I don't think he has the cardio advantage over Chris Dawkins. So other than maybe just trying to grind out Dawkins against the cage, I'm finding really, I'm finding it very, very difficult to find even areas where Abdurakimov is going to have the edge over Dawkins in this fight. Abdurakimov coming into this fight almost 40 years old, 39 and 10 months when he makes the walk to the cage. I want to list off the wins. We don't normally do this deep dive through records but in the ufc wins over freight train hamilton wald harris chase sherman arlovsky and tybora the tybora fight one that kind of ages like fine wine and marcin was on the downturn at that point too the losses tim johnson Derek lewis and then of course curtis blades and for tim johnson did he look good against moldovsky's last time out no but tim johnson He's got those looping hooks, almost like Chris Dawkins. If Abdurkimov can grind out Chris Dawkins, if that size can really wear on him, we've seen Abdurkimov weighing in up near the limit of heavyweight. Maybe that's going to be his best pack to victory. I just have a hard time where I haven't seen Abdurkimov in a long time. I know he's going from Blades way up at the top to Dawkins, who is making his way up the rankings for sure. He's a great fighter. It's a tricky one for Dawkins, but I do still like him in this one. And again... Hopefully from him and his camp, they probably don't want him to showcase his jiu-jitsu in this one because you're going to be on your back if you are. But I do think that Dawkins has a great opportunity with the hands. So there's a UFC poster just to the right of Craig that has Vulcan Ustamir and Anthony Smith's faces on it. Now, you might say, hey, that's not the best main event in the world. But there was once a fight poster that had Shamil Abdurakimov versus Derek Lewis at the top. And the co-main event was Francis Ngannou against Anthony Freight Train Hamilton. So it got worse. The point is, is that Shamil Abdurakimov at one point was in a main event for the UFC. And he looked pretty good against Derek Lewis until he got knocked out. It was kind of the original Derek Lewis gets taken down for 15 minutes until he knocks in his opponent fight. So there has been those glimpses of success from Abdurakimov in the cage, but he's never been able to keep it up throughout an entire fight. I really do see cardio and striking being on the side of Dawkins. I love Dawkins in this fight. Alright, so we look at the odds for this fight, and Abdurakimov opened a plus 120, and now he's a plus 159 on best fight odds. For Chris Dawkins, he opened a minus 140, he's a minus 194 or thereabouts. And we have a look at the topology votes for this one, Matt. I'm not overly surprised. 959 total votes, 84% Dawkins, 86% by knockout, 8% by decision. For the 16% that have of Durkimov, 51% by decision, 37% by knockout. Knocking out Shamil Durkimov is not going to be easy. Curtis Blades did it, but he mixed in a lot of the grappling with it. That was so long ago. Uh, listen, Derek Lewis did it four years and nine months ago. The trouble for me with Abdurakimov, he's no longer 39, he's 40. Chris Dawkins' birthday is on Saturday. He turns 32, so happy birthday to him. Matt, 
What are you thinking? This is a really odd fight, but I was trying to think of different times that we've had contenders in the same division, kind of on the same ascension at the same time. For instance, you bring out the Shamil Abdurakimov main event that he had against Derek Lewis, don't forget. But who was the co-main event of that fight night? It was Francis Ngannou against Anthony Freight Train Hamilton. Now, this all, I'm going to bring it all together. Hear me out. Derek Lewis and Francis Ngannou, when they both became contenders, it felt like they were doing it at the same time. We have these two guys, we're not going to let them fight each other until they both get to the top of the division, then we'll finally put them in the cage Worst together. fight ever. Worst fight ever. Then, we had, I'm going to say Cyril Gaon and Jarzinho Rosenstrike were kind of, they were sort of coming up at the same time, we'll say. I get Jarzinho a little bit earlier, but still, they were both kind of making their rise at the same time, Cyril Gaon gets the win. I feel like Chris Dawkins and Tom Aspinall are kind of the two newest guys who it's okay. These are the young contenders making their rise through the, through the division. It's just a matter of time until they're going to finally get in there with each other, I think. And I do feel like if Chris Dawkins is able to get the win over Abdur Akimov, that's probably the next fight. And I mean, if you look at it for Aspinall, it was going to be the boxing and the pressure from Sergei Pavlovich, but he gets a nice test and a grappler. And Sergei Spivakin looks amazing for Dawkins. I've had questions about his striking in the past because, again, against Zhu Enyanwu, and that's what? his last loss, he was winning that fight Just until he didn't. And if you look at it, his wrestling defense, how good is it? I know how good his grappling is. We're going to find that tested here against Abdurkimov. I still like Chris Dawkins in this fight. I love his straight punches. I love when he comes forward. He proved it to me against... Uh, this is going to sound so weird. If you told me this like eight months ago, I'd go, what? But the win over Parker Porter continues to look better. And I just like his overall well-rounded game for Abdurkimov. I haven't seen him in two years. I didn't like what I saw. Again, he beat Tybora. That was great. Almost three years ago. He beat Arlovsky almost three years ago. He beat Chase Sherman three and a half years ago. I just haven't seen it. And now he's 40. So I like Chris Dawkins to be the fresher, younger fighter that's continued to put it together and improve before our very own eyes. UFC, give us UFC Philly or UFC London and have it headlined by Chris Dawkins versus Tom Aspinall. I'm doing your job for you guys. Liverpool. Let's make it happen. I've got Dawkins. Matt has Dawkins in this one. We absolutely love the fight. And 14 of them on this card. Two title fights up the top. You're not going to want to miss any of it. So keep locked in with Fight Night Picks, we always say. Let's get into it. Hooker is on the move. He's got the visa. He's got the contract. He doesn't have COVID. He's going to make it. Dan Hooker is now taking on and was taking on Afghanistan and Germany's own Nazareth Hockpress. And Matt, we talk about uber prospects in MMA. For Nazareth Hockpress, yes, he's had some stumbling blocks. Yes, he had a fight against Marchin Held that didn't go his way. A lot of people have. Straight up. Natan Schultz, former two-time champ with the PFL, he couldn't even beat him this year. So if you look at it, Hockpress loses that tough challenge. But then he builds himself back up. UFC Moncton in our own neck of the woods, Moncton, New Brunswick, Canada, looks amazing in his fight there now. That was against Thibaut Goody, and that was almost three years ago, but it was still great. Has a stumbling block against the Southpaw, Drew Dober. Bit of a surprise there. Beat the, beats the team alpha male coach, Alex Munoz. Beats Rafa Garcia. Looks very good with the boxing combinations and the fluidity in that fight. Now he's going to be taking on Dan Hooker, whose last two losses are, and this is not a test or a lie, Michael Chandler, and before that, Dustin Poirier. Hooker's taken on top guys at 145 and 155 for the longest time. Now it's okay. Hooker goes from fighting the top five to reaching outside of the top 15. Nazareth Hackpress gets yet another opportunity to scratch the surface and really reach that full potential that we've expected out of him. Now, in their particulars, 
Dan Hooker's had one hell of a time to get to the States for this fight. Nazareth Hakparast has had different camps, right? Because he trained at UFD in the past. He trained at TriStar in Canada. Now, because I saw it in Uros Medic's pictures, and I didn't make a mistake. It wasn't Kelvin Gaslam. He's training at King's MMA, and I was really interested to see that. He also lost his mother in the last couple of weeks to cancer, so obviously thoughts and prayers are with Nazareth Hackpress, not just for losing his mom to cancer, which I'm sure a lot of you would have had family members, as we have, who passed away due to cancer, so the thoughts are with him. But again, the unrest that has gone on in Afghanistan as well, so we just want to kind of throw our condolences and sympathies out to him. He's probably not one of the fighters, and there's, there's some of them that watch these videos, but still, you hate to see that for a guy. But as far as a fight's concerned... We had this circled as a possible fight of the night because these guys are bangers and they'll throw down. This is going to result in fireworks. I am fairly certain about that because for Dan Hooker, we've really only seen him struggle against superior strikers. And I know that's kind of a hard thing to even find out there, a superior striker to Dan Hooker because Dan Hooker is what we talk about when we talk about a long-range striker. He's massive for this weight division. And again, I feel like we have to say this about every fighter who's moved up in weight and then still looks big. How did Dan Hooker ever weigh 145 pounds? Like he's six one and he's pretty shredded it's just that was a wild weight cut for him to ever make and you could feel that at 145 a he didn't have the gas tank because most of his camp was just dedicated to losing weight not really working on his skills and b the durability you did worry about now he didn't have any knockout losses down at 145 pounds but look at the yair rodriguez fight for instance yair rodriguez lands like I don't even know how to describe it. Like, a turning jump moonsault kick. And it hurts Dan Hooker. It does. Now, if you fight Yair Rodriguez, you're probably going to get hurt by a kick. It's happened a lot before. It's going to happen again in the future. But Dan Hooker, against other primary strikers, normally has a field day. If he can keep you at the outset of his reach, like he did to Dan, or, uh, Ally Quintasori... He basically can just have his way with you. He can kick your leg. He can jab your body with his hand, but also with his kicks. And we know his jabs and right straights are phenomenal. The problem with Dan Hooker, though, is when guys start to mix in the wrestling, it can start to leave some question marks in his head. We talked about Carl Robertson earlier on in the card about a fighter who can almost get into his own head. He's so good at striking that he knows his opponent wants to take him down. So then he becomes a little bit hesitant. Dan Hooker doesn't really have that problem. He more just meets his opponent's takedown attempts with strikes. He's got great knees coming up the middle. He has a highlight reel absolutely full of them. He has great elbows too. And the thing about Dan Hooker is, I don't know if he has good cardio or bad cardio. This is kind of the open-ended question where I switch it on back to you because Dan Hooker has great output. I know that for a fact, but look at his two five-round fights in the UFC. I know this isn't a five-round fight, but still, you have to kind of take what you can from those. Against Paul Felder, He's a great striker for three rounds, then he gets tired, becomes a wrestler. Against Dustin Poirier, he's a really good striker for two rounds, starts to get tired, becomes a wrestler. And Dustin Poirier is a pretty good grappler. I don't know if you've heard about that. So it's not normally his best course of action. So I don't know if for Dan Hooker, if it's he gets so tired that the fight IQ starts to go out the window, or he gets so tired that he figures, okay, I know my opponent's going to try to take me down. What's the best way to know that my opponent can't shoot for a takedown if I'm on top of them? So for Dan Hooker, I have a few fight IQ question marks, but I think as a whole, he has better striking than Nazareth Hackpress. None game. of those things matter in this fight because if Nazareth Hackpress shoots for a takedown, I'll shoot the Poirier's hot sauce. It's not going to happen. You're going to have changes though when you are training out of Kings and that's going to be aggressiveness with your striking. Now, it cost Hackpress against Drew Dober. What could it do in this fight? Because for Hackpress, 
you know him to be that high, high stance, good blocking boxer. Not a lot of kicks out of him. Now, we talk about the meanness of striking, and I'm going to talk about it the further on that I go up this card. But when guys go to Kings, like Naaman Gracie, he had that mean streak in him this weekend. Oh, my God. Mark Leminger is a good fighter. <laughs> And Mark Leminger is a good striker. Naaman Gracie looked like a, I don't know, not a Gracie. He looked amazing. He was mean. He just moved forward and beat the crap out of him like Brian Ortega did against Korean Zombie. Maybe that's what we get out of Hackpress. I just wonder a little bit about some things. And with Hackpress, you know, when all of your power comes from your boxing stance and your boxing... When Dan Hooker's kicking your legs, that's where it really plays into effect. Again, it is a three-round fight, so cardio, I don't see as being a huge issue, but we'll see again. The anxiety and the nervousness of trying to get out of New Zealand. That's not a joke. I laugh, but that's serious. So we'll see how that plays in. The odds for this one, Hooker open to minus 150. Still minus 150, minus 155 for Hack Press. Open to 130, still about a 130. Matt, we haven't seen the topology votes. The bigger name here is Hooker, who's main evented shows before. If we're going over under topology votes, I'm saying 75%. You think it's over or under? For I was Hooker? just about to say, I think it's about 70 30 Hooker. So I guess I'll say I'll go slightly under because he got knocked out in his last fight and that was on a big card. All right. 83% Dan Hooker out of 984 total votes. 38% wow. by decision. 55% by knockout. For the 17% that have Hack Press, 51% by decision. 38, 39% by knockout. Matt. Fight Night Picks have one of the biggest contingencies of Nazar Hackbrass fans out there. So what can you say that's going to incense them? It's going to get them all excited about this fight against Dan Hooker. Because Chandler had a lot of success with his boxing. The difference, though, is Chandler is one of the best grapplers in the UFC. So when he's ducking and throwing overhands, you really have to respect the initial takedown attempt from a guy like Michael Chandler. Against Nasser at half press, he's a decent wrestler, don't get me wrong. He has at least shown it in a few of his fights where he can go out there and get an offensive takedown. It's not like it's not something in his repertoire. The issue is, I don't think half press can wrestle with Dan Hooker at all. Like, Dan Hooker, his reactions to takedown attempts are basically second to none. Half press A is already the much shorter fighter in this fight. So the knees of Dan Hooker are going to have a much easier time making their way from point A to point B against a guy like Nasser and Hackpress. So if he is finding himself ducking to try to get into the range, and I don't always mean that with a takedown attempt. Let me at least clarify that. When Nasser and Hackpress ducks, he does it in a way that is very susceptible of getting hit by a guy like Dan Hooker. Like a Darren Till. Kind of. It's just... He likes to get his way into the pocket that way, and it is really good, but when you fade on the outside and you don't have kicks, then you are kind of jumping your way into the pocket a lot. And in boxing, there's a saying, jump in, get carried out. I think that's what's going to happen. I think Hackbrass is going to walk into a big shot from Dan Hooker, and Dan Hooker will finally get his place. Maybe he's not a top five fighter like he's been billed as the last couple of years, but I still think Dan Hooker can have a lot of fun fights with guys in the top ten of this division. Matt, I can't wait for this fight, but I'm in agreement as well. I've got Dan Hooker in this fight because, again, I think the kicks are going to be huge. Kicker. Get it? Ooh, fight night picks, Matt. I love this fight, but again, for Hack Parast, you can't kind of bill him as a prospect anymore because he's had so many fights and he's fought some of the higher level guys. But at the same time, I would have liked to have seen that original matchup that he had back in the spring against Don Madge where we would have learned a lot more. How's his takedown defense? Because you know he could strike and Madge would have been the perfect litmus test there. But I really have to go with Dan Hooker. I know he's lost to Poirier in a knock-him-out, drag-him-out fight. And he did get knocked out by Chandler and then had to hang around Fight Island for a while, which That's is sad. sad to see. But yeah, I, I do like Hooker with all of the weapons that he possesses. If he can bring it all together in this fight, I think he has a great opportunity here. It just would have been nice to see Hackpress 
Yes, in there with Drew Dober a little bit longer, you know, because we didn't really learn that much about that fight. I know Drew Dober hits hard. He won by knockout fairly early on. It would have been nice if that fight did go into the third round, where we did know a little bit more about Hack Press against the upper echelon guys. I know Dan Hooker doesn't always beat top five guys, but at least he's been in there with them, and I think that experience is huge. Both of us going with New Zealand's own Dan Hooker to get the win. Let us know down below in the comments section who you have, and I know... There's a lot of people out there that have Afghan roots that absolutely love Hack Press. We want to hear from you as well. A great card and up at the top. Two title fights. Volkanovski, Ortega, Shevchenko, Murphy. You're not going to want to miss it. So keep it locked in with Fight Name Picks. We always say, let's, let's get, get into it. it. At Bantamweight, we have a couple of fighters trending in opposite directions as Brazil's Marlon Moraes takes on Georgia's Marab Duashvili and Matt. I got to stress that point, and I'm going to hit you over the head with it. Because for Marlon, this is a guy that had a competitive start to a title fight against Henry Cejudo until his corner had to will him to continue to fight. And if you look at it at the five on in, it is two and three. You look at the wins. A Sun Sao, who he had two fights against him. One was good and one was bad. You look at it, he loses to Cejudo. He then beats Jose Aldo by split decision. Say what you want about it. It's still a win on his record. He loses to Sandhagen by knockout. And then in his last fight, he loses to Rob Font by knockout where he had flashes of brilliance. We saw the flashes of World Series, Marlon. We saw the guy that looks like the last airbender, not stylebender. From Marab, starts off his UFC career on an awful note because he lost two fights in a row. One was split to Frankie Signs. Say whatever you want. He had an opportunity to win that one. That's a very 2014 one. thing to happen. Then he loses to Ricky Simone in the weirdest, I'm kicking a bicycle while I lay on the mat, but am I finished type of fight. But since then, he's just won and won and won some more. And if you look at it in the five on in, the names continue to consider a steep climb. Brad Katona, we love him. Casey Kenny, Gustavo Lopez on short notice. John Dodson, great fight. And then Cody Stamen, where Marab beat him with not just the striking, but the wrestling. And that's the craziest thing. I remember Gustavo Lopez was going into his fight last weekend against Haile Alatang. And what did he say? I've been training my wrestling with Cody Stamen. I'm fit and ready for this fight. And to an extent he was. I mean, if, if there wasn't a... a point lost due to uh, a foul alatang hey lee would have won that fight but that's neither here nor there marab looked amazing in that fight now he comes in against marlon a guy that can get it done with the power in his hands get it done with his offensive wrestling so many things match up so well in this fight that i would say it's so close to even the odds are so spread apart because for marlon he gets finished and you don't like that there's just so much to talk about with this fight because i guess i'll start with marlon Marais. With Merlin, he is that One Punch Man. Now, I don't watch anime, but from what I understand, there is a series called One Punch Man, and the lead character looks a lot like Marlon Marais. Now, there's a reason people were making those jokes, because I would say his initial UFC run, he was as dangerous as any contender that there was on his way to a title shot. People don't talk about Henry Cejudo as a future Hall of Famer, because he fought a bunch of bums after he became champ. He beat Dominic Cruz, one of the greatest fighters of all time. He beat uh, T.J. Dillashaw, another one of the greatest fighters of all time and sandwiched in between those wins he'd be one of the most dangerous contenders of all time and you really have to put yourself in that 2019 mindset if you want to talk about how dangerous Marilyn was leading up to that fight and i mean henry also beat the greatest fighter of all time demetrius johnson you can't just gloss no that's true sorry and i completely forgot about that too so i just mean Marlon isn't the odd one out with those four names i understand he kind of is but he really does belong in there because his initial run up to the title he was knocking people out with one punch he was knocking 
knocking them out with one kick. And if that didn't work, he just choked out with a guillotine. Like, Merlin has the finishing abilities of a guy like Alistair Overeem. The issue is that he also has the durability of a guy like Alistair Overeem. And that really is the comparison that I'm going to make a lot in this video. Because Merlin has all the strengths that a guy like Overeem has. He has phenomenal kickboxing. He has great Muay Thai. He is a dynamo on the feet. And if guys decide to shoot for takedowns, he's got great def defensive submissions. My issue with Marlon is always going to come down to the durability, though. And this is the weird thing about this fight with Marab, because he's not in there with a finisher whatsoever. And I remember when uh, Cody Garbrandt fought Hafela Sunsau. Leading up to that fight, it was, okay, Cody hasn't looked great lately, but the big key was that he wasn't in there with a power puncher. He wasn't in there with a finisher, so maybe he will finally look really good. And he did. The issue is that a Sun Sao is more of a volume striker, so sometimes he can leave himself to be hit. If Marab decides to throw punches with you, it's only because he's going to shoot underneath the second you decide to respond with something and then take your legs out from under you. I just don't know how many opportunities Marais is going to have in this fight to really let his hands go before he finds himself just dumped back onto his back. The weird thing is, for Marais in the UFC, 66% takedown defense. It's not great, it's not bad, and I mean, again... He's won more fights than he's lost, and he fought for a title and had success. So take that for what it's worth. For Marab, though, with the striking, not near the level of Marlon. A guy who spent a little bit of time in New Jersey and then moved full-time back in American Top Team in Florida. You love to see that, especially for a fight like this. Training with great fighters and great wrestlers. You know American Top Team to have great wrestlers. For Marab, though... He's one of those guys, and he did it against Ralphion Stotts, and I don't know if it was one of those ones where I'm fighting this uber-great wrestler that I think is going to have an awesome title fight against his teammate in Sergio Pettis, but he throws his spinning back fist and hits him. I think that's one of the worst things that could have happened to his career because from then on, Marab became a whirling dervish of spins, and listen, it's like a cosmic gumbo when you bring everything together with his striking. He throws weird punches, he throws spinning stuff way too much, and he throws leg kicks where he throws it and then he just kind of like backs out of it. Against a pure striker and a guy like Marlon, man, those could be found out. But the thing about Marab, he chains more takedowns than, I don't know, a chain smoker in the 80s? Is that fair? I, yeah, it really is. That it, song with Halsey? I guess. The thing that, I see this fight going one of two ways. Either Marais hits him with one of those classic head kick knockouts like we saw against Jimmy Rivera. Or, even if Marais hits him and hurts him, I don't think he can really get much done afterwards. This is the big problem. Once Marab does start to chain his takedown attempts, even if you do hurt him, I can see this fight being like Edson Barbosa versus Kevin Lee. Edson Barbosa hits him with the wheel kick, Kevin Lee goes on baby deer legs and immediately shoots for a takedown, gets his head out of trouble, secures that takedown, and then just kind of goes to work on the ground. My issue with Marlon is that after you do take him down, he's not as active off his back as you'd like, especially for a guy who is a credentialed jiu-jitsu player and who does have good submission wins on his record. The thing with Marlon, though, is a lot of his submission wins come from him hurting his opponent on the feet, them being rocked, maybe them shooting for a takedown, or him just getting on top, pounding them out, and then them giving him their back. I don't really look at Marlon as the, you know, like Brian Ortega types of jiu-jitsu where it's, oh, if you take him down, don't even worry about it. With Marlon, you can hold him down and we even saw that against uh Henry Cejudo and Henry yes he's a better fighter than Marab Devalshvili but I don't know if he's a better wrestler at 135 pounds because hear me out 
Marab is the bigger of those two fighters, and I do think that he's at least more tied to his wrestling. Henry Cejudo will strike with you because he's a way better striker than Marab, so he's going to give a guy like Marlon maybe a few more opportunities to land that big shot. With Marab, he's going to throw, like you said, maybe one spinning back fist, immediately shooting into a takedown. I just don't think Marlon's going to have any chances to land a big shot on the feet, and that's why I like Marab a lot in this the fight. The odds in this one, Matt, they open to par. Right now, you can get Marlon Moraes at the steep price of plus one 96. You can get uh, Marab Dashvili at a minus 248. If we have a look at the topology votes, Matt, they are incredibly skewed towards the Georgian fighter. 1,053 total votes, 80% Marab, 84% by decision. For the 20% that have Marlon Moraes, 48% by knockout, 39% by decision. To me, I like Marab Dashvili. Again, Marlon can wrestle, and that's the thing, but it gets him in you know, the first round, and then in the second round, I worry, and then in the third round, I worry. With Marab, he's like an energizer buddy, and he just keeps going, and I like that in a fight like this against Marais. Could Marais knock him out? Sure. But I think I'll go with the guy where I've seen him just work, 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 like Rihanna. And that's where I'm going to stop with the comparisons. I really do think Marab has a great opportunity in this fight. I'm in agreement here. Yeah, and uh, the cardio is a big factor too. Because Marlon's kind of your ideal one-minute fighter. He can knock you out. He can submit you. But other than that initial burst, you can whittle him down if you are really dedicated to the takedowns. And if you are able to, and this is weird, but it is true. If you could just discourage him a little bit, it goes a long way. Marlon's one of these fighters who, when things are going well, then he starts to build on that momentum. But once things start to trend in a poor direction, he kind of just lets them go. Like, there's never a big resistance from Marlon once the fight starts to go away from him. So I do think if Marab can get that first takedown and really prove that, okay, round one, we're not here to fight an MMA fight, we're here to wrestle, I think it's just going to make his life even easier as the fight goes on. Both of us going with George's Marab Dashvili. We have 14 total fights on this card, including three at the top that are five rounders, so you're not going to want to miss that. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks, we always say. Let's, let's get, get into it. it. If you've been liking this stuff from Fight Night Picks, consider supporting the channel by utilizing the super thanks. All you have to do down below the video, you toss in a little bit of bonus, you buy yourself an animated super thanks, and they will post the following public comment on your behalf. All sorts of different options out there. We'd certainly appreciate the support with the channel. You guys are definitely the best fans in all of MMA, and we appreciate each and every one of you and hope that you definitely enjoy this weekend's card. All sorts of great matchups littered throughout. We appreciate the continued support of the channel and the boys. Thanks so much. Without further ado, let's get into it. Bit of a head-scratcher on the main card of UFC 266. We have the former strawweight champion and recently former title challenger Jessica Andrade up at 125 pounds taking on Cynthia Calvillo who unfortunately dropped her last fight as well to a top contender in Caitlin Chukagi. And Matt, it's been a tale of odd careers for both of these women. For Jessica Andrade, had success at 135 being a woman at 5'1 very early on in her career. So what does she do? She makes the drastic cut 20 pounds south to 115. Builds herself up. Is able to win the title amazing stuff out of her beating rose nama Yunus. looks like she's going to be the next big thing it doesn't last that long and then she has to build herself back up she moves to 125 she beats the woman who just beat cynthia calvillo in chukagian and gave her the old <sighs> body punch Shit. and finished her looked amazing in that fight then she gets valentina shevchenko and gets finished in the second round so listen we can't have our cake and eat it too every single time for calvillo 
She was that next big thing at 115 pounds. I mean, Matt, I'll give it to you. She was on a poster at one point in her career. She's really had big fights kind of her whole UFC career. I thought Cynthia Calvillo was like the Tatiana Suarez, the Marina Rodriguez of 115, like knocking on the door. She's going to be a title contender. And it just didn't really happen. But I wouldn't say it's of a fall to Rome because her success in the UFC has still been, you know, more than her losses. Like, you know what I mean? It hasn't all been roses, but it mostly has. For Calvillo, it has been a really interesting bro, because at 150 pounds, she was like this weird team alpha male product that no one really knew about. And she had that weird UFC debut against Pearl Gonzalez, where it was their both of their debuts, but for some reason they promoted the fight a lot. And she looked really good. And ever since Cynthia Calvillo has had a weird ride. Up at 125 pounds, though, I don't think it's even arguable. I do think that this is her best weight division and the weight class that suits her the best. I just think she was cutting too much weight to get down to 115 pounds because you look at her and how she matches up physically with the women at 125, and I would say she fits in perfectly. I don't think Calvillo's lack of success at 125 pounds is due to the fact that she's undersized for the weight class because Caitlin Chukagian, although thin, has a good frame for the weight division, and I never felt like in the fight against Calvillo. Calvillo was just so much shorter that she couldn't... Uh, close the distance and that's why she ended up losing that fight it was weird because yeah Cynthia Calvillo has a win in a UFC main event that's a real thing like Cynthia Calvillo had a five round contest against Jessica I so take it for what it's worth but she did look really good in that fight and that was a weird fight because it was kind of on short notice for both athletes they were just throwing it together it was one of those weird pandemic main events we're gonna have to do like a whole series on weird pandemic main events like Rackage Smith three rounders but anyways she did look really good against Jessica I, and it left a lot of people very excited because A, she was winning a lot of her fights with the jiu-jitsu at 115 pounds, but up against Jessica I, she showed her striking's improved a little bit. She has five-round cardio. There was a lot of positives to take from that fight. And then she just forgot all of them against Caitlin Chukagin. And I know Caitlin Chukagin is probably the most frustrating fighter to fight in the UFC. I know, like... Luis Enrique is probably like, hey, I fought Francis Ngannou and it's way more frustrating fighting him. But if I were to ever talk to a former opponent of Cynthia Ka or of uh, Caitlin Chukagin, it would probably be very frustrating. Calvillo, A, had a really hard time closing the distance in that fight. And B, just never really had a plan B. And that was my big problem with Calvillo. We've really seen the, prog or the progression of her MMA skill set because she was so green coming into the UFC at UFC 209. And now she's improved. I just don't really know how much she has improved since then. I I think beating Pearl Gonzalez is a good win, don't get me wrong. But beating Jessica I, like, it's a step up, don't get me wrong. I is the better fighter there, but it's not the step up that I would like to have seen over the four years in between those fights. It's just with Cynthia Calvillo, I like her grappling, and her striking's not bad, don't get me wrong. It's just I never know what her plan B is going to be in a lot of her fights, because I don't trust her striking for 15 minutes in a lot of fights. I don't purely trust her wrestling for 15 minutes in a lot of fights. And when it comes to the grappling, I think Cynthia Calvillo can submit a lot of fighters at 125 pounds, but I feel like the situations and the scenarios kind of almost have to be perfect around it. If she gets her opponent tired in the third round, then takes them down, then yeah, I think some of those avenues are going to be open, but I don't think Cynthia Calvillo beating someone like Jessica I then proves to me that you can go in there and beat someone like Jessica Andrade, who, leading up to the Shevchenko fight, she was the only fighter at 125 pounds anybody thought had any chance to beat Valentina Shevchenko. For this fight, Cynthia Calvillo is three years older than Andrade, and you look at Calvillo on her way up through as an amateur, she beat Aspen Ladd as a pro. Jillian Robertson, Montana De La Rosa outside of the UFC, so those continue to age well. She beat Joanne Calderwood, Pollyanna Battaglia, Courtney Casey, I mean 125ers, and then again, the losses. Carla Sparza 
and Caitlyn Chukagan. So you know that Calvillo's a good fighter. You know that. And she switched camps. She's no longer Team Alpha Mill. She had a little bit of a time at American Kickboxing Academy. She's now training out of Vegas, so that's interesting. For Andrade, there's only one speed. I'm going to pick you up. I'm going to throw you. I'm going to use brute force. And if I get tired, oh boy, it's not going to be good. But I know exactly what I'm going to get out of Andrade every single time. And if we decide to take flour out of that cake... Well, we never have, so I, I don't know what's going to happen. A flourless cake is going to be weird. It's just going to be... So, Matt, we've learned about cake baking. We've learned a little bit of the tricks of the trade that Calvillo has the wrestling in her back pocket, but has lost to a very good wrestler in Carla Sparza. She has good striking, but she's lost to a finesse striker against Caitlin Chukagan. Those things are going to happen. 9-2-1, the total pro record for Andrade, again. 30 pro fights and she's still younger so again is there still tread left on the tire there are questions that you ask yourself when you look at this fight you can draw some parallels not in style but in age and in terms of competition like dan hooker and nasrat hackbrass in this one but i look at this fight a little bit differently and when i do look at the odds they're not even close andrage open to minus 230 she's minus 272 favorite for calvillo open to plus 195 she's plus 215 if we have a look at the topology votes matt not even close, 1,074 total votes, 88% Andrade, 35% by decision, 55% by knockout for the 12% that have Calvillo, 78% by decision. Do you think Calvillo gets a submission in this fight? I'll get to that, but I have one last point I have to make about Jessica Andrade. Jessica Andrade rides a very fine line, and I'm going to call this the Aroldis Chapman line all of a sudden. Because Aroldis Chapman, when he throws a baseball 103 miles an hour, is a great pitcher. No one can hit him. When Aroldis Chapman throws a baseball 99 miles an hour, everybody can hit him. It's not even hard to do. Now, to you and me, I can't hit a 99 mile an hour fastball, so I probably can't hit a 103 mile an hour fastball either. But I say that to say that once Andrade loses a step, she might be like an Allen Iverson, like a Chris Davis like uh, Noraldus Chapman to where when you ride those extremes so heavily the second you do lose a little bit of athleticism it's a lot different than when somebody like Greg Maddox loses his athleticism because Greg Maddox can paint the corners he can put the ball where he wants to put it to begin with with Andrade it's a lot of that swing big miss big and I do worry about her when she does get to that like 35 year old stage in her career because when Andrade is in her physical peak and I still do believe that she is and that's why I'm picking her for this fight I think she can go out there right a lot of fighters but when i do see even a hair of andrage's athleticism start to slip that's what i'm going to start to worry about her in this division now i did make a mistake because it's a four-year age gap between calvio and andrage happy birthday to jessica andrage she shares a birthday with chris Dawkins. they <laughs> both have birthdays this weekend Dawkins turns 32 andrage turns 30 I look at this one again. If Andrade starts to slow down in the second round, Calvillo can pick it right up. So maybe you do like her at an underdog, especially at, you know, over two to one. Hey, there's a good opportunity there. I do like Andrade in this one, though. Again, with the pure athleticism, I think that's going to win the fight for her. But man, this is... This is closer to me than those odds suggest, so maybe go with the underdog in this one. But I, I, I'm just so slightly going with Andrade here. Is this the first woman's flyweight? I guess no, but I was going to say since it's the first woman's flyweight uh, fight. 
the crossroads fight in the division, but of course it's not. I, there's been plenty Modifari of Modafari and Santos. Exactly. I was just going to say, is Andrade the first like contender who might lose to an up-and-coming prospect? Because if Calvillo is able to get the win, I would say it puts her in number one contender uh, position. Because I think Andrade is kind of like Jermaine Duran to me. Hear me out. I think the champion of this division is so much better than everybody else, she's never going to lose. Similar to Amanda Nunes. I kind of think Jessica Andrade is this division's Jermaine Duran to me. Where if you beat Andrade... Like, Andrush beats everybody else, so you're probably getting yourself ready for a title shot. That's the only reason I say that. I still think Andrush can be able to get it done, though. Both of us going with Brazil's Jessica Andrush to pick up the win. Matt, we have three big-time five-rounders up at the top. Diaz Lawler, 17 years in the making. Shevchenko's taking on Murphy, and in the main event, Volkanovski taking on Ortega. You're not going to want to miss it, so keep it locked in with Fight Name Picks. We always say, let's, let's get, get into it. it. Fight fans, if you love the heavyweight division and a clash of styles, we have a great fight for you. Coming up at UFC 266, Curtis Razor Blades is going to be taking on Jarzino Rosenstrike. And for Curtis Blades, he has to look at this like Drake. And not like certified lover boy Drake, but find your love Drake. And listen, you know that song. Just think back to what, 2009 or thereabouts? I mean, he was popping off, putting T.O. on the map, at least for Canadians. And listen, if you're a Canadian like we are, Toronto's not the center of the universe. Stop it. Ottawa's the capital. Friday night. Toronto's a nice city, though. We got an election going on right now as we're filming these, so all sorts of exciting stuff out here. But Curtis Blades, to me, to relay that all back together, he's got to go, I'm more than just an option. Hey, hey, hey. Stop overlooking me at the top of the division. <laughs> Probably not going to happen until you beat Jersey, yo. So for Curtis Blades, he has a giant fight coming up against Rosenstrike, a guy that didn't get it done against Cyril Gaon, didn't get it done against Francis Ngannou, but hey, those are the only two blemishes on his record, and that's going to happen because hopefully those two behemoths, juggernauts and former training partners, actually get a fight, and Stipe Miocic and John Jones get to sit in some weird side corner. Matt, we get this fight where Blades got knocked out unceremoniously for Blades fans in his last fight where he's a favorite to the same magnitude as he is this weekend. And Matt, I know you have a point that you want to talk about with Suriname's Biggie Boy. A guy who... I was on the train for a really long time. Early. Early. Like, I was on this Biggie Boy train as he was coming into the UFC. So I can firmly put my conductor hat on. I was swayed a little bit in some of his fights. Now, do I get back on for a Blades fight? It really is tricky because this clash of styles is so specialized that it's just... It, it really is tough when you're trying to predict a fight like this. When Jarzinho Rosenstrike moves forward, there is not a more dangerous man in the UFC. Okay, probably Francis. We saw what happened when he moved forward. He knocked out poor Jarzinho. But from the small sample size we've seen, when Jarzinho moves forward, no one can stop him. Like, no one's been able to yet. He moved forward for three seconds against Alistair Could Overeem. Junior Albini do it? Certainly couldn't. When Junior Albini put on the wrestling shoes, then yeah, Rosenstrike had some trouble. But when he threw one combination to start the second round that ended with a head kick, Albini said goodbye to his consciousness, I guess, because that was a very bad knockout. Here's the thing with Rosenstrike. Like, Shaquille O'Neal, if he threw uh, free throws underhand, probably would be the greatest player of all time, right? If he just shot the Rick Barry ones, you'd look like an idiot, but you'd be the best player ever. 
Jarsenio, we're not even asking you to look like an idiot. Just walk forward and let your hands go. You knock everybody out when you do it. Even look at the Alessio Sakai, or the Augusto Sakai fight, sorry. Sakai is a good fighter, but not a great fighter. I feel like he's a good prospect, but at this point, we've kind of figured it out. Sakai's a good 10 to 15 fighter, but I doubt he's ever going to get a little bit higher than if that. If you're a good wrestler, you can beat him. Exactly. If you're a power puncher forward, you can beat him. And Jarzinho, for a solid three minutes, wasn't either one of those things. He was a weird, hesitant man. But then, at the end of the round, when he finally decided, oh, when I move forward, this guy just backs up in a straight line, Jarzinho lands an overhand left that absolutely folds him. And that's the thing about Rosenstrike. He's oddly ambidextrous for this weight division, and that's something that I've always caught, or I always pick up on in his fights that I really do enjoy. He has great power from both sides, and he has great kicks from both stances, too. And that's something that not a lot of heavyweights have. Yes, Cyril Gaon has it, but there's a reason he has an interim heavyweight title around his waist. It's not very common in this division, but Rosenstrike is one of the few guys who can strike from both stances. And this is my other point. Why did Cyril Gaon versus Jarsenia Rosenstrike have to suck so bad? That fight should have been great. It wasn't great, though. Didn't that suck. fight should have been phenomenal. But what we saw was Cyril Gaon use his length and his jab to great effect against Rosenstrike. Blades, oddly enough, is going to have to use similar tools against Rosenstrike because Rosenstrike's really dangerous on the in-between. When he's got you on those weird, oh, should I shoot for a takedown? Should I disengage? That's when Rosenstrike is most dangerous. Curtis Blades is going to have to be, like we saw in the Junior Santos fight, for instance, all the way on the outside with his jab or all the way in the inside shooting takedowns. It'll be really interesting because we've seen Rosenstrike doesn't really have much of a game off his back. He's not great at getting back up to his feet. He doesn't really offer any kind of submissions off his back either. Like, he's defensively sound for avoiding ground and pound, but he's not a great fighter at getting back up. 80% takedown defense for Rosenstrike so far in the UFC, and he's fought decent wrestlers, but nobody to the credential of Curtis Blades. And the weird thing is, for Rosenstrike, you look at the losses. Well, he was losing the Overeem fight until he didn't in the final seconds of that Finally one. Finally decided to step forward. But the Nganu fight, and again, Cyril gone by decision, where it was just gone using his wits and his smarts and able to win that fight. And for Blades, Nganu, Nganu had his kryptonite, had his number. And Derek Lewis, where he did great in the first round, and then in the second round, it wasn't the first round. And he got finished in that one. So for Blades, obviously, he is liable and susceptible to get knocked out. And if you call him and you tape the video... Don't bother hitting us up. How about that one? So that's a real thing. But when we look at this fight, Matt, Curtis Blades is so good at his wrestling. And the real X factor to me is this isn't a five-round fight. And in the Volkov fight where you're taking on a good striker, Volkov was able to kind of pick up as that fight went on. Can Rosenstrike at least stifle the ground game of Curtis Blades early enough to where he can start his own work? Because for Rosenstrike... It's not so much, okay, quick knockout, and boom, we're out of here. It's, okay, two minutes, three minutes, four minutes, boom, there's Jairzinho. Can he kind of speed that one up a little bit, and is he able to do that against Blades? That's the big question here. So for me... It's a really, really weird thing for Curtis Blades right now because in boxing, when you have a knockout like he had against Derek Lewis, you're never really the same. Like, and this is a real thing. And that's what I worry about. Like, did Curtis Blades getting knocked out that last time, is that going to permanently affect his chin moving forward? Because he is a really durable heavyweight. Even in some of the fights where he's won by knockout, he still eat big shots and then walk through them. And even in the Francis Ngannou fights, like that first loss was a doctor stoppage. He ate some bombs from Francis before he went down. And even the second one could kind of be an early stoppage. Now, he lost by first round knockout, but still, he had a little argument after that fight of, oh, I wasn't really out. When you lose 
by vicious uppercut and then like two clean overhands from a guy who weighs 300 pounds. Those are the types of strikes that do change you moving forward. And yes, he has had six months off. And for me, that's normally like my little mental check for, okay, he's good to come back. A really bad knockout loss, don't come back for six months. A TKO loss, normally like four to five still. I don't think you should uh, play around with your brain health at all. But that's my question mark in this fight. If Curtis Blades is even 90% of what he was, I think he runs over Jairzinho. Just because stylistically, this is a nightmarish type of a fight for Rosenstrike. He can't get up off the bottom. Yikes. And once he does get taken down, he... The issue with Rosenstrike is he can't threaten with either submissions or his own offense, so he doesn't have anything off his back. Curtis Blades has shown that against guys like even uh, Alistair Overeem, who is a good grappler off his back, he can get really hellacious types of ground and pound off in that top position, and that's why I think Rosenstrike's going to have a tough time out. So for me, the question mark is more around Curtis Blades' confidence than anything. If Curtis Blades feels great coming into this fight, and if he thinks, okay, if I go out there and ragdoll Rosenstrike, I am one fight away from a title shot, then I think Curtis Blades won't have a single issue in this fight. If we get Curtis Blades who's second-guessing himself, who is kind of reaching for a takedown and then maybe not dedicating himself to it, that's when Rosenstrike lands one of those crazy overhands or an uppercut or a head kick or something wild and Curtis Blades ends up unconscious. But... I'm going to say Curtis Blades is going to show up with his wrestling shoes on, and I do think we're going to see that version of Blades. It Blades runs across the cage and takes him down. I like Blades inside the distance. I even like him by submission in this fight. And if we look at the odds for this one, Blades open a minus 240, roughly a minus 313 on best fight odds for Rosenstrike, open a plus 198 or thereabouts. He's plus 245. Tapology votes for this one, 1,088. 79% Blades, 59% by decision, 31% by knockout for the 21% that have Rosenstrike. Yep. 87% percent by knockout it's happened before it could happen again let us know down below in the comment section but matt both of us going with razor blades to pick up another win in this fight to get back off the schneid i can't wait for this one and oh by the way three five round fights you're not going to want to miss any of them so stick around diaz is taking on holy smokes robbie lawler 17 years in the making you've got murphy taking on shevchenko and in the main event volkanovsky and ortega keep it locked in the fight name picks we always say let's get into it Autumn is in the air. Pumpkins, they're in the patch, and our friends at Manscaped are here to make sure that you don't carve your pants, Pumpkins, when you're grooming, if you know what I'm saying. Do you know what I'm saying? Maybe you do, maybe you don't, but make sure you're keeping those things fresh this fall with the leaders in male grooming and their brand new fourth generation performance package boys get ready for a cuffing season like no other ready to take the leap into fall of manscaped join the over 2 million men worldwide using manscaped by going to manscaped.com 20 percent off and free shipping with the code fnp now matt listen i had to take a little bit of time and this is breaking the fourth wall before we even started because I had this toiletry bag in my suitcase from last week. Now, maybe does that say a lot about me? Yeah, it probably does. And should it have been in a drawer in the office here? Yeah, it probably should have been. But I bring the shed travel bag with me. Like I say that I do. Now, there's one thing that I've neglected low these couple of weeks, Matt. And I got to be dead serious. Oh, and no. I noticed it a lot last night when I was editing over the graphics. Let me find it in here, this tickle trunk, the weed whacker. Now, if you're on a plane or you're driving, you just heard an uncomfortable noise. And if you're watching along, you probably understood what I was doing. But that weed whacker is the greatest tool that I have in my arsenal. And not to say that the Lawnmower 4.0 isn't, because it is right up there. But I have 
a massive nose hair problem. And it's helped me tremendously being able to trim that stuff up. But first off, listen, we know that that new performance package 4.0 and includes the new lawnmower 4.0. And if, if you know anything about a good shed, you got to keep your tools in there. They got to be crisp. They got to be clean. They got to be ready to go. And I'm at boom i still have the travel lock on that, which works. is great to see so one two three if i want to turn that travel lock off the lights are going to go down and it works just perfectly one two three again your lights are going to go up and then it's locked i had it locked in travel so the battery wouldn't die but if you pick it up you also get the crop preserver ball deodorant goes just on like a salve you just and it just goes on the very best. And then the other thing that you're going to get, if you pick this up, is, of course, the Crop Reviver Ball Toner. Spritz a little bit of it on. Again, I did when I was away the other day, and it was the very, very best. And again, Performance Package 4.0 comes with the Weed Whacker. You know this. It is the greatest out there. This nose and ear hair trimmer uses a 9,000 RPM motor-powered 360-degree rotary dual-blade system. Proprietary skin-safe technology included with that. And listen, I'm I'm serious. I use these products all the time, so they've worked the greatest for me. I know they've worked the greatest okay. for Matt, if I'm speaking for you. Yeah, no, they've been great. So make sure that if you want any of these great products, use our promo code FNP for not only 20% off, but free shipping as well. Make sure you use promo code FNP for 20% off and free shipping. They're going to throw in two free gifts if you pick up that performance package 4.0. I talked about it. The Shed Travel Bag works the very best, but also... The Manscaped boxers, they are very comfortable. So get 20% off free shipping with promo code FNP at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with promo code FNP at manscaped.com. Make your balls a priority this fall. Choose Manscaped. Your balls will thank you. If somebody comes up to you on the street and they just decide to unzip their hoodie and they go, hey, I know who's going to win between Robbie Lawler and Nick Diaz in the rematch. They're a liar, and you want to run the other way. We have a couple of guys that are fighting 17 years between the first fight and the second fight. Ruthless, <laughs> ruthless Robbie Lawler, the former UFC welterweight champion. He got it done in different organizations, and so did Nick Diaz, the former Elite XC great and Strikeforce champion. These guys had similar paths in the UFC. One run that didn't go great. A great time outside of the promotion. Then they came back and they found lightning in a bottle. Now, more so for Lawler because he won the title. But for Diaz, he fought Carlos Condit for the interim belt. He fought GSP. He fought Anderson Silva. Not for the belt. And again, of those fights, all of them losses. One of them a no contest because Anderson Silva was on the USADA band stuff. But... If I look at this fight, it is such an anomaly in the normal fights that we get, especially on pay-per-views, because this one's five rounds. This one is also Nick Diaz's first fight since 2013 when he fought Anderson Silva. He's been away. He's partied. We've seen him more on TMZ than we have seen him in the cage. But for Nick Diaz, you know what you're going to get. Great jiu-jitsu, sneaky, Odd boxing, like boxing for MMA. His boxing's better than his jiu-jitsu. That's it. His boxing's better than his jiu-jitsu. Now, you see that out of the countdown promos and Matt's stealing the thunder. But when I look at Nick Diaz, the third thing that you just can't quantify is his cardio. And you know his cardio is going to be there. For Robbie Lawler, insane brawls. And the weird thing that scares me out of some of those countdown shows is the fact that they go... Robbie Lawler used to be this like blood and guts type of fighter. Now, all of a sudden, he's reserved. But out of him being reserved, he started to lose some fights too. Now, 
probably lends credence to the miles on him. The uh, wild training that he probably had at Militich Fighting Systems early on in his career that shaped him to become the man he is. But the weird thing here that I have to say, Lawler's one of those guys that found success late in his career. And now he's even later in his career where the success hasn't been there. This matchmaking-wise makes a lot of sense. But again, like I said from the start, if somebody knows how this fight's going to go, they're a liar because you have no idea. Guy's been off for eight years. You haven't seen him in the cage at all, let alone, like, you've barely even seen him in a UFC. So you don't like, want me to break down this fight. You've barely seen him in a UFC event. And the other guy, for Robbie Lawler, again, the five on in, one and four, he beat Donald Cerrone, lost to Dos Anjos in Winnipeg, Canada which is odd. Uh, he loses to Ben Askren where he was beating him until he lost. Loses to Colby Covington emphatically in front of Trump and Trump. And then he loses to Neil Magny where you figured, well, Robbie Lawler can kind of wrestle sometimes and he, he just looked bad in that fight. If I came up to you and said Nick Diaz is about to fight a guy who got 30-27 by Neil Magny, would you be very excited? Nope, not at all. But that's what we're getting this weekend. This is the problem that I have with Robbie Lawler, and I'm glad that you brought this up about how he did kind of get into his prime later on in life. A lot of athletes, they have two jumps in their career. It's between the first and second year, it's after your rookie season, and then a lot of them end up getting another jump between their eighth and ninth season. It happens with quarterbacks. I know it's weird, but a lot of people do end up having almost another jump, and that second jump is when your mentality and your athletic prime have finally coincided with each other you're fading physically but you now know enough about the sport to where you can put everything into practice Robbie Lawler got his prime in that second prime of his life where okay athletically I'm still able to do all these crazy explosive things but now my mindset has finally caught up to my body and he went on a great run because of that the problem is that after he did kind of go through all the gas in his second run the UFC's kept him around for fights like this and I would say even the Cowboys-Cerrone fight was a sign of things going in the wrong direction because he had taken so much time off after that Woodley knockout loss. People forget, he gets knocked out by Tyron Woodley at UFC 201 and then takes a whole year off until UFC 214 to fight Cowboys-Cerrone. And yeah, it's a win, but beating Cowboy at 170 pounds when you were a champion one fight before, like, that's not that impressive. And even that former Robbie Lawler, A, he didn't really have the knockout power because he landed a lot of clean shots on Cowboy and couldn't put him down. And the output wasn't really there. He did kind of fade in that second round. And this has been the story of Robbie Lawler's career. In five-round fights and in three-round fights, he will take one round off. Normally, it's the fourth round, and then that gets him ready for the crazy onslaught that is about to be a Robbie Lawler fifth round. But he always does take around off and against a guy like Nick Diaz I don't think you can get away with stuff like that because you know what's not good for your health getting into crazy MMA wars like Robbie Lawler has that's not good you shouldn't be eating hundreds of strikes to your head that's really bad and experience is a good thing but the damage that comes along with the experience sometimes can overshadow just the experience I know Nick Diaz hasn't been in the cage for the last few years but sometimes being outside of the cage working on your skills is a lot better than getting the experience but also taking the damage that comes with that experience and I mean it is a really tricky one because again like we said for Nick Diaz's last fight I, I guess I made the mistake the last fight was in 2015 January of 2015 when he took on Anderson Silva. So it's been six years. It hasn't been eight. Before that, a loss to GSP, a loss to Carlos Condit, a wild fight. 
If you want to go back and watch fun Nick Diaz fights, there's, there's a lot. There's not many that are boring. I mean, KJ Noons is a great striker. That's an awesome the one. Frank Shamrock fight. My favorite fight is the one rounder against Paul Daly, where they just go at it. And if you like Paul Daly, I mean, just about every one of his fights is like that, unless he decides to wrestle against MVP. But that's a great one. BJ Penn was a little over the hill right then, but it was close enough. And then a guy that's probably not going to get anywhere new, near this cage, he's probably going to go in a quiet back room and not watch this fight, is Takanori Gomi. Because as soon as he sees the Diaz brothers, he probably just, like, I don't know, I, just runs. Nervous. Just runs. But, yeah, poor Takanori Gomi. But you look at the wins that Nick Diaz has in his career, and I know they talk about it quite a bit. I mean, you look back at his overall body of work. Nick Diaz loses early on to Jeremy Jackson. And then he beats him twice. And then, boom, all of a sudden, one's with IFC, one's with UFC. He beats Robbie Lawler, loses to Carol Parisian, an OG at the time, forever, really. And then he goes on a wild run. He loses three in a row to kind of usher himself out of the UFC. And again, that's to Diego Sanchez, Joe Riggs, Sean Shirk. Then he fights away. Then he comes back. Then he goes away. Like, it's just been a crazy career for Nick Diaz. But through it all, the boxing. And I'm going to put the clip up there from Martin Sano's Instagram. I watch Nick Diaz box getting ready for this one on Instagram, and usually a highlight reel gets me excited. It didn't get me excited. But from that, I went back and watched some of his fights, and it didn't look all that different from his fights. Wild looping single shots that then set up different things, and I like that out of Diaz. For Lawler, it's either he brawls, or he just waits for the storm to come and then he can get overwhelmed. There was a version of Robbie Lawler who could technically kickbox because he had a lot of power too. Like, just look at the Ro or the Roy McDonald fight, the second one. That's not really a brawl. That's two guys who are really good at striking, throwing strikes at each other. And Robbie Lawler showed that he can duck shots, he can dodge them, he can respond with his own, and he can punch in combination. The problem is that... That fight was so long ago, and people forget. UFC 189 is where Conor McGregor got his first UFC title. It was more recent than uh, Nick Diaz's that, last fight. That's true, but still, it's not a great sign when we're talking about pre-UFC 200 events as being your prime. And Robbie Lawler's last kind of great fight was UFC 195 against Carlos Condit. Carlos Condit retired this week. That's how old Robbie Lawler is, and he's still doing the damn thing. I just don't think Robbie Lawler's being matched up with the guys he should be at this stage of his career. Carlos Condit fought Court McGee. He fought, uh, who was his last fight? Max, Max Griffin. Griffin. Like, those are good fights for a guy who used to be great, but can still put on fun fights. Those are the guys you should be matched up with. You shouldn't be matched up with Neil Magny. You shouldn't be matched up with guys like that who are just sort of, not to say boring, but maybe a little bit more methodical than what you're looking for in a Robbie Lawler fight. I think Nick Diaz has got this. I really do. I think just putting putting a good pace on Robbie Lawler at this point in his career, and we did see his defensive grappling not look very good against Neil Magny. And yes, Neil Magny's a good grappler, and he's probably a better wrestler than Nick Diaz is. But I don't think Nick or I don't think Neil Magny's jujitsu is better than Nick Diaz's, and that's the big key. We talked a lot about his boxing, and of the Diaz brothers, I've always felt like Nate is a little bit more jujitsu than he is boxing, and Nick's always been sort of the opposite, a little bit more boxing before jujitsu. I think we're going to see a very much new and improved jujitsu version of Nick Diaz because it's easy to train jujitsu when you're outside of the cage, and it's something you can do easily and pick up a lot of skills on in the last six years since he's uh, actively competed in the UFC. And I think Nick Diaz, he might not look like prime Nick Diaz, but I still think he's going to look good enough to be Robbie Long. If we look over in the YouTube community tab, which I suggest you do, mm -hmm. I threw the picture out there last night for this one. Who have you got? And I want to go through some of the comments from the Fight Night Picks fans. Akash Deep, who's there every single week saying, gotta go 
The man who got me into the sport over a decade ago literally can't wait. Devin Davis is saying, I can see this fight being pretty lackluster. Nick doing a lot of taunting. Robbie doing a lot of waiting. Close decision. Everyone says it's robbery either way. I'll take Lawler since he's been active. It's been nine years since Nick has won a fight, which is true because he beat BJ Penn at the tail end of 2011. UFC 137. That's crazy to think of. Uh, Twin City saying, I want Diaz to win, but for anyone who has been following Nick's social media knows he's been partying a lot over the years, and I think it might show in the fight. And let's go with one more. Corey McGregor saying, I saw in an interview where Nick says he's better than he was before, and that Robert Lawler isn't any better. Diaz brothers don't say shh. Unless it's true, they will also back it up. I'm leaning towards Lawler until I saw that. Now I've got Nick. Matt, I look at this one. The odds right now are about par. Lawler open a minus 250 favorite. Diaz open around a, a plus 210. If we have a look over on topology, I haven't looked at the topology votes. I'm assuming they're going to be close because to me, it's a, it's a guess. You're making an educated guess off things you knew six years ago and, what, a year and a half ago? So it's an educated guess at best. Like, do not take this to the bank. You're crazy if you're gambling on it. But, Matt, when we're going topology votes, I'm going to say 65% is the over-under. Oh, yeah. Nick Diaz is more than 65%. Ooh, 1,090 total votes. 62% Diaz, 70% by decision. For the 38% that have Lawler, 64% by decision. I think Nick Diaz is going to take it. You know, rematches normally favor the guy that won the first time, but normally they don't. They're not spread apart 17 years. I like Nick Diaz with the boxing in this one. I just think he's going to be the more active fighter. Maybe you get the dog out of Robbie Lawler. This is going to be like Woodley when he fought Luke. I'm going out on my shield because he's lost four fights in a row. But I do like Nick Diaz. I think he's going to be the fresher guy here. I do like the Woodley cop because it's true. Woodley just reached a stage of his career where he stopped throwing punches back. And Robbie Lawler is in that same part of his career. The difference is Robbie Lawler doesn't have the personality to go fight Jake Paul after he retires in MMA. And that's unfortunate. I wish he did because he deserves that kind of a paycheck. I think Nick Diaz is going to come in the new and approved version. Again, I don't think Nick Diaz is going to be a top 15 fighter. I think this version, if he is able to beat Robbie Lawler, could have some money fights. He might, hell, he might even call out Conor McGregor. Masvidal. Yeah, Masvidal's probably the call. I just don't think we're going to see Nick Diaz beat Robbie Lawler. And then all of a sudden, they're like, wow, Nick Diaz is in there with Colby Covington. I feel like he's just going to stick with these money fights, but I think he'll be able to get the win. Both of us going with the returning fighter in Nick Diaz to get the win. Are you surprised? What say you? We want to hear from you down below in the comment section. If you're listening along on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, Rate and review. We'd love to read those on screen as well. And the big push here at Fight Night Picks, 30,000 subscribers. We will add a new show. So if you've been hesitant, if this is the first time, toss us a like and a sub. We certainly would appreciate it. Two more big fights on the card. Both of them title fights. Shevchenko taking on Murphy for the flyweight strap. And up at, oh boy, featherweight. You have Volkanovski and Ortega. You're not going to want to miss. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. And as we always say, let's get into it. Take this for what it's worth, but getting ready for this weekend's UFC 266, occasionally you'll watch the odd UFC countdown over on YouTube. They're always great. You can learn a lot about the fighters' camps, what they're eating, what they're doing for, you know, strength and fitness and conditioning and all that great stuff. And getting ready for our top three fights, they're all five rounders. This one happens to be for the flyweight strap. In terms of total airtime, Lawler and Diaz got 21 minutes. This fight got exactly 10 minutes, and that is incredibly telling. We have Valentina Shevchenko going for yet again another title defense. 
the five on in, she beats Jeskai for the belt. Carmouche, Chukagian, Maya, and then Andrade. The only fighter to really have any success was Jennifer Maya for a short amount of time. She's now taking on our Fight Night Picks 2020 Female Fighter of the Year. It's Lucky Lauren Murphy and in 2020. I mean, wow, what a year it was. But the overall five on in, a finish win over Mara Romero Barella. She beats Andrea Lee, beats Roxanne Modafferi, Lilia Shakarova, who tested positive with USADA, and then a split decision win over Joanne Calderwood. And even that fight not that long ago, just two, almost three months ago, the win over Calderwood. But Matt, I would be lying if I said that this fight was close because it's not and Lauren Murphy will not win. Is winning a split decision over Joanne Calderwood all you need to do to get a UFC title shot? It made me feel good because let's let's clear the air here. We were very much negative on Lauren Murphy at one point of the fight name picks existence. We, I'm just going to single myself out. I didn't think Lauren Murphy was that good. I got to be honest. I thought her on the Ultimate Fighter was kind of obnoxious. And every single quote she said was just, oh, I don't think Eddie Alvarez knows how to train women. And hey, Eddie Alvarez probably knows a lot about MMA. But Lauren Murphy has slowly started to grow on me, personality-wise and fighting skills-wise. Because at the end of the day, I only care if you win your fights, and that's what she's been able to do. And at least this Lauren Murphy, as of late, has tipped up her aggression like tenfold. The Lauren Murphy of old could get outworked in some of her fights. You could take her down, you could outbox her, but what you were really trying to do at the end of the day was just outwork Lauren Murphy, and you were able to do that. Now, at 135 pounds, it was a little bit different because just the women she was fighting were a lot bigger than she was, but at 125, physically, she's much stronger than a lot of these women, and her aggression is able to win her a lot of these close decisions because when it goes to the scorecards and the strike numbers are kind of close, well, at the end of the day, Lauren Murphy's normally the one moving forward, at least going forward, and that's what the judges score. I, this is what I'm going to try to hand it off to you with. What is, out of all Lord Murphy's skills, what do you think her best is? Her, her aggression when she's on the ground, maybe? Okay. Do you think she'll be able to take Shevchenko down? No, I don't think. And, and again, go. her boxing's great. I don't see her outboxing Shevchenko with the kicks. And with Lauren Murphy, I think she has great top pressure. Again, Shakarova was on short notice. She had all the wrestling and grappling chops that you like to see of somebody making their debut. And none of that worked for her. And Lauren Murphy mopped her in that fight. But I'm just like, could you imagine if, okay, Dustin Poirier's going to fight Charles Oliveira. That's a fight everybody's very excited for. Charles Oliveira is very, very good, but so is Dustin Poirier. Could you imagine if two fights ago, Dustin Poirier beat a guy in his UFC debut? That wasn't expected to that, be in the UFC. Yeah, that like, was up a weight class. That's kind of what we're getting with uh, at with the Lauren Murphy. Lauren Murphy, I know her fight against Calderwood was billed as a title eliminator, so the winner kind of had to get the title shot next. I just don't think that skill-wise, no matter who the winner of that fight was, that really gets them ready for the test that is Shevchenko. Shevchenko against Andrade, I thought that was going to be by far her hardest fight in the division. Andrade has legitimate one-punch knockout power, has absurd aggression, which is something we think Lauren Murphy has, and she doesn't even come close to Andrade with her aggression, and Andrade's a phenomenal grappler. Valentina Shevchenko took her down with zero hesitation with a lot of ease and immediately got into a mounted crucifix and elbowed her out i think andrage the first superior grappler to lauren murphy and i do see this fight going a very similar way that that one did shevchenko to get ready for andrage went to florida a little bit early trained out of uh what was it team smiley face was the gym Some random gym. she trained at a brunswick maine at, at a small gym and like i know the gyms in maine it was a small gym in brunswick to get ready for yoana yeon jacek and then if you look at it for this fight 
She went up to the Pacific Northwest, not a big gym at all, just kind of got ready, hung out by the beach, and she's been at the PI for the last couple of weeks with Pavel and Antonina, just getting ready for another fight, like it is. So, to me, Matt, I just want to talk about the odds. Shevchenko opened a minus 720 favorite, she's minus 1341, and Murphy opened a plus 520, she's a plus 771, over under 97% Shevchenko, what are you saying? It's probably over. 97% right on 1117 total votes 71% by knockout 9% by submission 15 or sorry 14% by decision for the 3% that have Murphy 33% by knockout 53% by decision I love Lauren Murphy as a fighter I think she's a great personality in the UFC she's just turned 38 Um, she was the most impressive female fighter of the year 2020 and like that's not a joke. Like, I'll, I'll pop the graphic up there, but I'm serious. Like, and I made a great case for her. I think she's a good fighter. I think she's a huge uh, litmus test, and it's great to see a fresh face in this fight. I don't think she brings anything Shevchenko uh, or to Shevchenko that she hasn't seen before. I think Shevchenko wins this fight 9.7% out of 10. I don't really have much to add. I, listen, here's the great news. The main event of UFC 266 is between Alexander Volkanovsky and Brian Ortega. And that is one of the best fights on, well, really for the whole entire year. So maybe you're not that excited about this co-main event. We have a phenomenal fight coming up next that hopefully you can get a little bit more excited for. If you've got that Murphy hype from down in Katy, Texas in the Houston area, you let us know down below. But Matt, both of us going with Shevchenko and still, but yeah. Holy smokes, that main event. Volkanovski taking on Ortega. You're not going to want to miss it. Keep locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's Let's get get into it. Absolutely amazing fight in our main event of UFC 266. Welcome to Fight Night Picks. As always, one half your host and duo, Craig Allen. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram, at Craig Allen FNP. With me to my left, to your right, Matt Allen on the respective socials, at Matt Allen FNP. And I know we've been so excited for this fight to finally happen for the featherweight strap. And it's unfortunate, you know, maybe somebody wants Max Holloway in the mix. He'll have a fun fight coming up in the not-so-distant future. But for both of these guys, Brian Ortega has grown leaps and bounds between fights. And if you look at it through his early UFC tenure, but not just early UFC tenure, just about every fight Brian Ortega's been in, he's been outstruck. And in his last fight, he outstruck the Korean Zombie, one of the better guys with the hands in the division. You love to see it. And for Alexander Volkanovsky, a guy that kind of got to the dance with his wrestling then abandoned it for his hands and continued to get better. He was able to outstruck or at least parry and counter with some of the great strikes from an all-time great at featherweight. And I'm not afraid to say it in Max Holloway. So for Volkanovski, an amazing run. For Ortega, an amazing comeback off the loss to Holloway where a lot of people wondered, how's he even going to come back, right? Oh, yeah, 100%. He ate an ungodly amount of damage in that fight, but after breaking his hand and cutting his hair and taking about two years away from the cage, he looked better than ever against the Korean Zombie. And I can be very honest about this. I completely counted him out in that fight. I thought Zombie was going to have his way with Brian Ortega because up until that fight, yeah, Brian Ortega offensively is a great fighter, but even go back to the Clay Guida fight. If Clay Guida can drop you, the Korean Zombie can knock you out. And that's, that's just, I don't make the rules again, guys. That's just how they are. 
Brian Ortega finally showed another evolution in his striking game, though, and it was really nice to see that he actually put in the work during his time off, because we've seen this of a lot of fighters. They take one year off, two years off, and they come back, and yeah, they might come back at about the same level that we saw them when they first left, but if you're not making use of that time, why'd you take it off to begin with? And for Brian Ortega, he actually looked like he did make good improvements with his striking, and I don't know if that has to do with the fact that he has switched up his camp quite a bit since the Holloway fight. I know before that Holloway fight, this is on me. I can't remember the name of his boxing coach leading up to that fight, but I remember every camera that was near Brian Ortega, this guy made sure it was on him too. And it was a lot of, oh, me, Henner, and Brian, and oh, me, Henner, and Brian. That guy doesn't seem to be in the equation right now. And I, I, again, I don't want to say, oh, it was just his fault, but we've seen Brian Ortega striking make a big leap since he has at least more personalized his camp. And that's the thing I do like out of Brian Ortega. It's hard to pin down just where does Brian Ortega train. It's not like he's someone who's with an American top team where it's like, okay, I go to this one gym and they have everything I need. Brian Ortega kind of has his own personal team around him. And that's something I really like. The first fighter that ever did this, and I always think about this, is George St. Pierre of course, because GSP had John Danaher, Faraz Sahabi, and uh, Freddie Roach, and Freddie Roach, and uh, Jackson Wink. So he basically had all the corners of the MMA world covered for his personal game. And it seems like Brian Ortega has at least started to branch out and just start figuring out, okay, how can I be my best self instead of okay, which gym will I fit in the best with? And if you look at it for Ortega, he was one of those guys that was such a primary grappler, similar to a name and Gracie that we saw this weekend go out there against Mark Leminger. Who can strike? And he looked like, I don't know, a Phoenix Rising. Bangkok ready. Like an Invicta Phoenix Rising. But yeah, Naaman just walked ahead, throwing hammers, and knocks him out. So for Ortega, now all of a sudden, that seems to be a tool that he has in his tool belt. And against a guy like Volkanovski, you can't be one-dimensional at all because Volkanovski is so well-rounded that there's so many different versions of him that he can throw out there. And he can beat you at your own game. Like when he fought our guy, Junior Bacon Cheeseburger, Jeremy Kennedy, and he ripped his soul out of his body. What did you make of that one? That was a filthy fight because JBC's pretty good everywhere. It's like he's a good wrestler. He has good jiu-jitsu. He has good striking. He has wins via all different, different ways on his topology. Alexander Volkanovsky khabib him though, and that's the only way that I can say it. Like he took him down, held him down with that wrist control, and just threw hammers at him from the top position. And that's where this fight gets really interesting because on the feet I think Alexander Volkanovsky at least has more weapons on the feet. He throws the leg kick with both legs. He can switch stances pretty much seamlessly between the two. And that's the thing about Volkanovsky. Yes, he might not be as flashy as some of the other strikers at 145 pounds, but that doesn't mean that he's not as effective with his strikes. He's a very defensively sound fighter, and he's just a fighter who doesn't make a lot of mistakes. Craig, how many times do we sit here and look at a fighter's uh, record or resume, and it's, oh, they made a mistake in this fight, and that's why they lost. Curtis Blades. Exactly. They zigged when they should have zagged. Alexander Volkanovsky doesn't really have that problem. We talk about fight IQ, we talk about a guy like Cyril Gaon, but Cyril Gaon fights a lot like Alexander Volkanovsky. The big difference is that if Cyril Gaon doesn't have things going on the feet, which hasn't happened yet, so maybe it will, never will, he doesn't really have the pure wrestling chops to just go out there and chain a single leg with a double leg and figure out a way to get you to the ground. He has good wrestling, but this video isn't about Cyril Gaon. With Alexander Volkanovsky, he's shown that when things are going his way on the feet, he can go to the clinch, get you up against the cage, dirty box with you, drag you to the ground. He's such a well-rounded mixed martial artist that it's going to be difficult for any fighter he's in there with to just go out there and beat him in one aspect. For Brian Ortega, listen, Ortega has the better jiu-jitsu in this matchup, and I don't think anybody would argue that with you. Here's the question, though, that I have for you. 
if Alexander Volkanovsky is on top of Brian Ortega, do you think he can hold that position confidently and safely? Or do you think Volkanovsky will use his wrestling kind of like Cowboy Cerrone did against Nick Diaz or Nick Diaz where it's, I'm just going to dump you. I'm just going to dump you to make you work and get back up to your feet. And I'm not going to play around in the grappling at all. I think that it's going to be telling, uh, if you look at it from Volkanovsky's last fight against Max Holloway, again, another very controversial close fight. But what happened near the end of that? Now, Holloway is a volume striker. He can pick you apart from the outside. He can do great work on the inside. Ask Brian Ortega. Volkanovski started to wrestle near the end of that. Had some success. Holloway did pop back up, but still had some success with it. Do you want to see Volkanovski do that against Ortega? I don't. That's I, how you get stuck into like a Nick Lenz guillotine. You're 100% right, but you don't become a fighter like Alexander Volkanovski and get to a title shot because you put your head in bad positions. The only reason I bring this up is, look at Thiago Tavares, for instance. Like, Thiago Tavares spent minutes in top position on Brian Ortega. And yeah, Ortega off his back did a good job with his hammer fist, oddly enough, but he has been a fighter who's been able to get held down in the past. A lot of Ortega's wins come in that third round, and for the longest time he was known as the comeback king like that was brian ortega's thing McConnell fight exactly you beat me up for two rounds then i submit you in the third and it's a pretty great deal when you're a guy like brian ortega but i do think that against volkanovsky volkanovsky might be able to have some success with his ground and pound in this fight the area i don't want volkanovsky in is in that clinch control situation because brian ortega has one position where he might be the best in the whole ufc with when you duck for a takedown and he tries to reach over that guillotine up against the cage i don't care who you are. You could be Damian Maya himself and you would have a hard time getting out of that guillotine. Because just the way Ortega's arms are, he's long for the division, like everything works together perfectly. And he's someone who, when you're in those in-betweens, he's looking for submissions and that's the area I think you could catch Volkanovski in. I think of Brian Ortega in my mind's eye is this great big guy for 135. Only a couple inches 45. taller than Volkanovski and he actually has less reach than Volkanovski at 145. Of course, Volkanovski through his UFC tenure one bonus, a fight of the night against Chad Mendez. Brian Ortega, it just goes on and on. Fight of the night against Holloway. Performance bonus over Edgar. Performance and fight of the night with Cub Swanson. Fight of the night with Hanato Maikano. Fight of the night with Tiago Tavares. It's insane the bonus money this guy has earned. And now, just to go with the fact that he has the money, he has the success, he has Tracy Cortez kind of in his corner. I mean, just everything's going great for old Brian Ortega. Everything's looking up for old Ortega. Now he has a big test in front of him in Volkanovski. And the last time that he challenged for the belt, it really didn't go his way. So, Matt, when I look at the odds for this one, Volkanovski open a minus 185 favorite. He's roughly a minus 171. Again, best fight odds for Ortega, plus 160. Now at a plus 142. Topology votes. Surprise to us is there to you. And a thousand... And 52 of them, roughly 71% Volkanovski, 80% by decision for the 29% that have Ortega, 55% by submission. Is it going to be in new? Is it going to be in still? So the reason I brought up the, I just said the word mistakes a lot in this fight is because Brian Ortega throughout his career has capitalized on the smallest mistakes his opponents have made really throughout his whole career. It's been a lot of those Hail Mary third round stoppages via knockout and by submission. It's really hard to get a Hail Mary win against a guy who doesn't make a lot of mistakes to begin with. And that's what I look at when I look at a fighter like Alexander Volkanovsky. He's oddly compact for this division. So it's going to be really hard to go out there and get a takedown on him because he just has such a low uh, center of gravity. And B, 
I'm pretty sure Alexander Volkanovsky is the most physically strong guy in this division. I know that's not something we talk about a lot when it comes to MMA. We like to talk about the wrestling or the striking a lot more. But I do not think Brian Ortega can take down Alexander Volkanovsky. I think Alexander Volkanovsky can take down Brian Ortega all day long. And that's where I have to side with Volkanovsky. He has that plan B to where, okay... If things aren't going great on the feet, maybe I don't want to be grappling with Brian Ortega, but at least let me try to get some of my ground and pound off, give this fight a different look. For Brian Ortega, if he's getting beat up on the feet, he can pull guard a few times, but I don't think he can go out there and just get a takedown for takedown sake against a guy like Volkanovski, and I think he needs one to win this fight. Brian Ortega did awful. Awful on the Ultimate Fighter. His picks were bad. So, so bad, and if you look at it, it was the Ultimate Fighter, Ricky Tercios, I mean, yeah, Brian Battle's pretty good, but good. forget about the rest of the guys. Volkanovski did a great job there from a coaching perspective. Who had Craig Jones? Uh, Alexander Volkanovski. Yeah, exactly. So many great coaches for Volkanovski. And Ortega had a good lineup as well, but ultimately didn't fare all that well for him. He has a great opportunity to capitalize on not just that, but also, I mean, listen, the guy loses to Holloway in emphatic fashion, comes back and puts on... I'd say a career performance against Korean Zombie. But this is what I will say about that fight. He capitalized on a mistake that the zombie did. Zombie crashes forward a lot. And if you even go back and watch the Aaron Rodriguez fight, how does Aaron stop him? Spinning elbow that he doesn't see coming because he crashes forward. Brian Ortega has a good spinning elbow. He threw it against Max Holloway. It just didn't land like it did against the Korean Zombie. And against Zombie, he hits it with him early in the fight. Second round's over. To me, and listen, if you're out there and you're a big Brian Ortega guy, you could argue against this, but I just felt like that was a zombie who was wobbled, and we never really saw a good version of him for the third, fourth, and fifth round. Which he said himself. Exactly. Now, again, if you lose really bad, of course you're going to make excuses, but again, to me, that performance came down to Ortega's ability to capitalize on a mistake of the Korean zombie, and I just keep on going back to, other than one overhand right that Alexander Volkanovsky walked into from Chad Mendez, who normally flatlines guys when he lands that punch, he really hasn't made a lot of mistakes throughout his UFC career, and he's been able to be in there with guys like Max Holloway and Jose Aldo and barely even uh, break a sweat against them. Now, yes, those Holloway fights were very close, and he did get hit with some clean shots, but I don't think Brian Ortega is the technician that Max Holloway is in the seat. Strike differentials for these guys. 6.02 strikes landed per minute. That's significant strikes landed per minute for Volkanovski to 3.31. That's an uber-positive strike differential. For Brian Ortega, 4.29 to 6.28. That is a bad and a giant negative that's also weighted by the Holloway fight. But you got to remember, Brian Ortega's strike splits are bad throughout his UFC career. He got outstruck by Holloway. What? Just about everybody, really. I mean, I go down through this list. I mean, Holloway, Swanson outstruck him. Moicano outstruck him. Guida, they were tied. Diego Berndao outstruck him he outstruck Tavares even Mike Del Torre outstruck him so again you look at the way that the fights ended Ortega's won uh every single fight except for the Holloway fight but I do like the well-roundedness of Volkanovski in this one I see it as very close I wouldn't be surprised if those odds end up like Volkanovski minus 130 minus 135 and maybe then you take a shot either way but I like Volkanovski for the well-roundedness here. If Ortega gets the win, it's going to be by one of those crazy submissions like he did against Cub Swanson. Like or Moicano. It, or Moicano. It's not going to be a traditional like, oh, I'm going to slowly work my way to the back of Volkanovski and then get him with a rear naked choke. I think Volkanovski's defensive grappling is a little bit too good for something like that to happen. But on one of those in-betweens, like let's say Volkanovski does get hit by a big shot and he does decide to go for an ill-time takedown. Brian Ortega is basically a Gracie. I know people have a hard time wrapping their head around that, but he 
basically like he's Henner's brother. Henner almost borderline adopted him when he was a young adult, and he's lived and been with Henner Gracie for a decade now. Like his jujitsu is better than almost anybody in the whole UFC, much less just this division. So if he wins, it'll probably be by sub, but I still like Volkanovski. Both of us going with Australia's own Alexander Volkanovski to get the win. I cannot wait for this fight. And listen, if you can't get enough of fight night picks, make sure you subscribe and toss a like. We get to 30,000. And listen, there was a big jump last week to get us up closer, but we can go from 27 to 30,000 just like tell that. A friend. You can make it happen. So tell a friend. We'll add it a new show to the lineup people want that dana white's contender series content among other things and if you can't get enough of us talking about sports make sure you check us out 15 minute card breaks i got a trevor lawrence autographed alan ginter i've got a randy arena autograph as well there's a story between everything and behind everything so check us out down below 15 minute card breaks matt i can't wait for this weekend we have Question mark kicks two hours before the prelims, so we get a chance to look at the weigh-ins. Maybe we see if Dan Hooker makes weight on insanely short notice. We're, we're really kind of tight on some of these picks. We have a switch of, of thinking. I went Kutsalaba last weekend instead of Devin Clark, and it paid off for me. So we'll check that one out two hours before the prelims. And also, the Fight Night Picks Fight Companion. You can check that out. Maybe you don't want to listen to the commentary. Maybe you don't want to listen to The Sting. He's out there doing one of those too. Maybe you want to check us out. You can find us on the Fight companion we'll drop the thumbnail and all the information as the week goes on i can't wait for this card it's an awesome one so keep it locked in with fight night picks as we always say let's get into 